Okay. Uh, no, it was just this morning. You were saying about digging graves. <laughs> I was thinking about the the pond where, uh, sadly, my dog died, that I kept seeing things on television with yet another scene where people uh, are forced to, you know, by the villains, to dig their own graves. Yeah. And But the reality is that they make very poor grave diggers, uh, especially under stress, and it wears them out. Now, they don't get to that minimum three and a half foot, at least, that they'll need, you know, because animals and the wind blows it away, um, <clears throat> before they're absolutely knackered. And, and I, I know of one where the guy said, look, you, you're going to kill me anyway, so do it now. And then he said, well, yeah, go on, shoot me in the foot, see how much digging I'll do after that, you know. <laughs> and he had a point, you know. <laughs> the whole killing had to be rethought. Gave him extra time anyway. <clears throat> but you really, it's a massive job digging your own grave. And, you know, you wouldn't do it willingly. Yeah, two Tonys. <laughs> in my book, The Mafia Philosopher, two Tonys. He was doing 141 years. He'd whacked a few people. And he, he gives all of his methods of um, corpse disposal and whacking people. Because he had a problem. He was in Alaska and he was also in Arizona. So you've got the extremes of heat and extremes of cold. So in Alaska, they were hoping that the birds would eat the corpse and they threw it in the river and stuff. And it, the, bo- the, the corpse just didn't... Uh, it froze, basically. So it was preserved. So the police ended up oh, finding right. it. Yeah, climate makes a difference. Oh, a huge difference. But in Arizona, mm-hmm. it will decompose fast because of the heat. But oh. you've got to bury it so deep, like you said. And sometimes they would put a dead dog on top of it. So if they, the cops brought out a cadaver dog Right. They think that it was just a dead dog, and they'd stop, but there's actually a corpse buried below it. Well, that's thoughtful. Yes. I feel sorry for the dog. <laughs> the informer probably had it coming, but that dog did nothing, <laughs> really. <clears throat> oh, I, I hopefully think, it was just roadkill. <laughs> um, re- the people who seem to know what they're doing, uh, from my experience, are those that uh, keep an eye on chrome plating uh, outfits. They have huge acid tanks, and... Uh, most of it goes into solution within 18 hours. Wow. So you've got to wear gloves, of course. Wow. And he, Safety first. <laughs> he was working for the Banana Crime family, and they invested in funeral homes. Well, probably <laughs> for good reason. Mm. The, uh, uh, so, right, where are here, here we are again now. <laughs> Part four. You just got a little uh, introduction there to David talking about corpse disposal, but we are back with David Macmillan again. Parts one, two, three, parts one, 10 years in an Australian prison, Supermax. He was running a international smuggling operation <coughs> with tentacles in Colombia, Thailand, and he does eventually get in trouble in five separate continents. So presently we've jumped from Australia over to Thailand. If you've watched parts two and three, all parts are in the description box below this video. So if you've not caught with us yet, highly recommend you check out the different parts of this video series and also David's books, Escape and Unforgiving Destiny, available worldwide in Amazon. And also please subscribe over to David's channel. All links in description box below this video. So, in parts two and three, in part two, David set the table for his sentencing in the Thai prison death penalty for a quantity of drugs found at the airport that didn't belong to him, but the 
task force in Australia and his nemesis in the DEA were rooting for David to get sentenced to death in Thailand just so they could get him out of the picture because they looked at him as just a scumbag um, heroin trafficker, deserved of the death penalty. Whether he's guilty or innocent or not on that particular day did not occur to them one iota. They also, when his wife was in prison in Australia, she burnt to death and they turned that into a propaganda tool whereby they said that David was killing off the witnesses. Yeah, so who's the bigger criminal in some of these scenarios? That's for you to comment on and wonder about. In part three, David ended up on the roof where I've gone through all the multiple uh, escape attempts now. The Swede has helped him get out. He's left behind his height, uh, challenged uh, butler, and... Didn't say midget. And... No, I, I was waiting for that, but uh, little jet, he was all dressed to come out. He, he wanted to come. He, he really wanted to join me on the plank of freedom, but um, he, he would have slowed me down. And you'll know why soon. But that's where we left it, Sean, wasn't it? That's where we left it. And David is so polite. He's almost got 100% approval rating on all of his videos right now. But we want some <coughs> trolls to come out of the woodwork because all the videos that have gone viral so far, trolls have come into them. First, that's, it's, like, it's like the harbinger of virality is for you trolls to get out. So please come out and, and launch attacks on myself. I love getting attacked on YouTube. And perhaps David would be amenable to that. Of course, think of all the <laughs> terrible things that I'm just not willing to admit to. I mean, this stuff... Somebody Where are right. the trolls? I must offend somebody. <laughs> I try hard enough. So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, Does well, like to fill in there? Not other than just the overarching theme, which is uh, as much uh, levity as we, as we inject into this. The fact is, uh, after every success... There's a tremendous downfall, and I've had uh, the decade in um, very bad prisons in Australia and been arrested despite massive precautions. My trial's coming to an end. It looks like I'm going to be one of the few Westerners executed in Thailand, which is by machine gun, by the way, at that time. A lethal injection didn't come in until later. Did you have to face the guy? Uh, Yes, um, leaning back on a, a plank of wood. You're leaning back on a plank of wood, and they just machine gun you. The ankle chains are still on there, um, hands tied behind the back. Ankle chains, hands tied behind the back. You've got, the your only... chest, you've got your chest as a good... Yes. And on the wall is a machete, which is waiting to cut your ankles off, because they want their chains back. And because they've been welded on, uh, that's the easiest way to get them off. Won't be needing those ankles for anything. Is it one machine gun, or is it firing squad? One machine gun welded to a bench in front of you with three bits of string attached to the trigger. Three officers hold a a string each, and I guess at the count of three or something, tug at it so none of them have to live with the burden of I killed this man. So in the Eastern philosophy, I suppose it's absolution, isn't it? I didn't kill him. So that is on the horizon. Um, or a very slow version of exactly the same thing spread over 20 years on death row in Bangkwan. So I didn't have much time. And as we left it in just the podcast before this one, I managed within the last couple of weeks I had to get out on the night that a bad guard would normally be sleeping below and 
we've cut only one bar, and Stan, my Viking Swedish friend, has managed to squeeze it up enough for me to just get underneath, provided, as I did, take off my clothes, oil up a bit, um, put a towel underneath the jagged bar so I don't cut into my back. It's not really fear of injury, but time was so crucial, Sean, that if I break this finger, it'll slow me down. If I hurt a, a leg, I'll lose time. What did you oil stop. up with? <clears throat> Johnson's baby oil. The chosen oil for the professional escaper. Sponsored by Johnson's. Yes. Though it might not be best. Um, anyway. <clears throat> so the key thing, I think, uh, as well from that moment was that as I held on to the bars facing back into the prison, watching those prisoners, I felt suddenly and immediately no part of anything, as though I'd flown in from somewhere and landed like a moth on the prison walls. When they say in meditation, like a Zen moment where you just become at one with the universe, was that the kind of feeling you had? Well, uh, in a way, but I was at one with um, some what is it, life and death fantasy game where I've got boiling lava beneath my feet. So you're Everything completely present. You're completely present. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I, I still had this strange moment of transition into I'm another person now. And the whole Thailand experience taught me, out of I crawled out of the depths of uh, despair, that it's possible to superimpose another personality upon yourself if that need comes about. And there were a lot of preparations for this. So <clears throat> I've hit the ground. My, I've had to keep my rope, which is, was most recently part of a bed frame, but came from the army boot factory. It's one inch wide uh, linen and canvas mix with polyester, so it's quite strong. When you say you've hit the ground, though, you're still within the prison complex. I'm just outside of my cell in building number six, of which there are ten. And that is within the center core of Klong Prem, uh, which then goes on to have other prisons beyond it uh, and other buildings. So I'm a long way from home yet. But not much time to think about it. By my digital watch, it is 2.45. And <clears throat> I, I was quite silent hugging the wall. The plank's been retracted by Sten. That's the last I saw of him. Uh, my rope is at my feet. I kind of bunch it together. You know, in a situation like that, where time is critical, everything becomes something you have to consider. Bunch up the rope and then have to untangle it, or take your time to loop it carefully over your hands. It's like Christmas tree decorations. You bunch those lights into a bag, they're never coming back out, <laughs> not for next year anyway. So I've kept my rope fairly loose, uh, and I've got a shoulder bag, which has most things. Hugging the walls... I go around the edge of the factories. This prison had a lot of different factories in it. After all, even my building held 1,000. Most of them are asleep by now. All I can hear from the cell windows, which has no glass, of course, um, just the low hum of all their fans spinning. <clears throat> I get into my little office that I've rented from one of the art factories. <clears throat> all my cupboards are open. Now, one of the essentials for 
any direct over-the-wall escape is a ladder. Where do you keep it? You can't, but you prepare for it. Um, my friend Stan had pretended an interest in oil painting for the previous six months, and for oil painting he needed a picture frame, so he was making his own, over which he would stretch the canvas. Now, <clears throat> these picture frames were not entirely customary thin ones. They were, and this is a very useful object for describing things here, they were about as thick as that, the edges of the frame, solid as a rock, <clears throat> and heavy, unfortunately. There were eight of them in one of the cupboards in my office. I grabbed those and put them in a bag, and they came with me, because they would form the rungs of a ladder, the outer poles of which I had yet to get. So, <clears throat> I already... I change a bit into my clothes that won't make any noise. I even had to consider that. No belt buckles or clanging things or catches or fasteners. And then head off towards the, <clears throat> what would you call it, the Chinese funeral uh, offertory gifts factory. Um, <clears throat> that was the best translation I've come up with. They made little ornamental boxes for Chinese funerals in which you give a gift for the afterlife. This involved making some gold-colored paper and hanging it out to dry, which they did over 15-foot bamboo poles, which start out about two inches one end and taper to um, thumb width at the end. <clears throat> so, I've timed this out during the day. I've walked around most of the, the prison and imagined the rest as to how long it should take, and I think probably an hour and a half. <clears throat> What I hadn't factored in was sound. Every footfall, every step, everything I had to open that creaked and whined during the still night, that slowed it down. <clears throat> when I came to that factory, when I needed my poles, a change had happened. The mesh that I'd planned on was sealed up. There was a, a plywood panel with nails in it. That had to come off. It didn't want to do so without protest. The nails squeaked and wrenched. Now, bear in mind, a few hundred feet away, there's a sleeping guard. <clears throat> Sean, the, the, the trustees of the different guards for the night shift would make up a bed for them at night, sometimes a hammock, sometimes some other platform. So they would kind of retire. They're, from my nighttime vigils at the window, I knew their... Um, Deep sleep curve kicked in around one and lasted till about four. But after that, they could stir, or the call of nature or drunkenness might make them move around. <clears throat> but from this factory, I could see somebody. So I had to squeeze oil into um, the little nail areas and with uh, some pincer pliers that I had stolen, um, managed to get them out and bring this plywood thing squeaking out, enough to crawl inside the pole factory. But this is taking time. I'm not even looking at my watch now. I don't, don't really, you know, the stars will be my guide. Um, <clears throat> I'm in that factory. Um, I'm dehydrating. I take a swig of water. I've got two bottles of water, plus a change of clothes and a few other items. <clears throat> I lift some of the poles down to the ground, lay them out, uh, two sets of two, put the picture frames between them and take out gaffer tape, taping those frames between them. So the result is 
quite long ladder with the rungs a few feet apart. Good. <clears throat> but I've got two of these because I'll need to join them together at the end of the wall because the outer wall is so high. It's not just brick, but a different kind of brick on the top, then curved, then poles, then barbed wire, all of which is electrified. Oh, my God. <clears throat> my uh, scientist friend, uh, his real name's John Russell, I can say so now because he died, he was a member of the Anarchist Society. I didn't think anarchists believed in rules, so how did they have a society? Anyway... <laughs> He was a nice guy and made uh, good hooch and fine telescopes. He'd given me um, electricity meter so I could read the voltage. But I abandoned that. Uh, I thought, <laughs> I've got to avoid it anyway, so what's the difference? <clears throat> I couldn't go back from that um, Chinese funeral factory the way I'd come because my ladders were too long to get out of that gate. So I had to break out of that factory by climbing its rear wall and dragging the ladders up with me and then out through the top, lifting some tin up. I've learned very quickly too that I don't have time for the niceties of using my pin supplies to extract nails and things. I've just got to lever <clears throat> stuff up and get through it somehow. And I'm willing to accept things poking into me and a certain amount of damage, you know, no I don't want a lot of blood spoiling my clothes. You can't look too battered if you're trying to check in on a flight, which was my dream for later on. <clears throat> but um, that, uh, the back of that factory led into the auto repair shop. <clears throat> I went that direction because I could make a little more noise. It was so distant from anywhere else. So I've used, I've dragged one ladder through, dropped that down, hauled the other ladder up, poked that through, carried it down to the second one, taken both of those and my bag over my shoulder and the two heavy ladders and gone down to the end of that factory, out and under the gate. Climbing it would have been noisy and taken too long. <clears throat> Past the wash tank and the toilets, there is um, my first uh, internal wall. That's got rolls of barbed wire on the top. Initial plan, use the ladder, go up the top, cut it open, climb through. Time against me. Can't do it. <clears throat> so, uh, what to do? I taped the two ladders together as one, propped it over the wall. Little David's running up one side and allowing his weight to tilt the other one up. Is that suppressing the wire? <clears throat> it's just pushing down onto that coil of wire. Um, I had a a way of getting that wire out of the way because I had a fifth bamboo pole which uh, onto which I had an S-hook. I kept that for years, that S-hook. I just knew it would be useful for something. And that was gaffer taped to the end of the pole so I could hook the rolls of the, the bamboo, pull them down, anchor that bamboo pole to the inside of where I was. <clears throat> and then I had a clear wall to put my two ladders so they wouldn't tangle or get caught. But... Um, that was a one-off. I'm out of poles after I've done that one. But I get to the other side. I haul myself over. I'm in building uh, five, which is not too big. It's pretty good. Uh, I pick up my long ladder and head for where I think I'm going. Bear in mind, I'm not really sure. I know that if I keep going for long enough, I'll hit an outer wall. But I don't know how many inner walls I've got to go through. <clears throat> now, at this point... 
I had to go past some factories where I knew one of the guards slept nearby. I put down, as part of a routine check, I put down this long ladder, had a look around, um, nothing much doing, but wait a minute, no, there wasn't. There was a guard in his flip-flops, beer belly hanging over his belt, scratching his dirty white vest, wandering about the place. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I had in my bag one other thing I haven't mentioned. <clears throat> when produced, this looked entirely like a forty-five automatic with a big fat silencer on the end. And, and this was the key to it, a laser sight on the top. <clears throat> I kept it lowered at my side with the sight there and followed the guard, but he went to the water tank, splashed himself and went back his other direction. So that was okay. <clears throat> now, as you're guessing from my description, this is not real. The laser sight is a, um, a laser pointer pin that um, I filched off one of the embassy visitors in some moment when she was had her back turned. <clears throat> you never know. Things come in handy. I think the, uh, the fat silencer was a shampoo bottle, <laughs> and the rest of it was balsa wood. And anyway, if somebody's got a red dot pointed at them and something that looks like a silencer at the end of a gun, they don't go into the details of what the rest of it looks like in the night. <clears throat> And the reason it was a fake was because there'd been some months when the question of would a gun be useful, and I worked out that it wasn't any use whatsoever. <clears throat> this is, I think, uh, lesson three in the uselessness of guns. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, this is the reason. If uh, I had cable ties with me, as I think I've mentioned, if I... I rounded a corner and unexpectedly bumped into a guard. He'd be as surprised as I would be, but at least I would know what I was doing and if he didn't know what he was doing. So I'd have that jump on him in the sense that he wouldn't know what was going on. So I could overpower him quite quickly by that element of surprise and then tape him up, use the cable ties. So no gun needed. <clears throat> If I see one at a far enough distance, then I just retreat to the shadows. No gun needed again. If the only reason I had my um, fake one made up the way it was, was if there was an in-between stage. Guard rounds a corner, has his radio, but I'm not close enough to get to him without him triggering the alarm, and he could run back the other way but I've got to immobilize him and keep him out of the equation. That's where the laser sight comes into effect. A real gun would be so useless. But even, look, guns with silencers are not that quiet. Very hard to get subsonic ammunition at your local store, uh, which you need to stop that clap that you get with um, when it breaks the sound barrier. Um, always useful to know. Uh, the other thing, too, is... I'm not a very good shot, and and if 
people refuse to die quietly most of the time, uh, except with a low moan when convenient. But um, uh, if he was shot and on the floor, then I'd have to run up and deal with the same problem. Um, on top of that, I would become not just a person escaping from jail, I would become a murderer of a Thai official, changing the equation quite a lot, getting cooperation from people whose memories were a bit vague. Uh, there's something that keys the public um, uh, memorability of people who are labelled killer with a gun. So here it's no use. Up close it's no use. But at that little range, it had a purpose. Laser sight, down on your knees. Don't say a word. Go up, tape him up, go on. So that was the function of, of that. It was for a very rare circumstance where somebody peered at a particular distance. So I kept that with me for the moment. But here I am in the next building, and I don't know where I'm really going. Um... And I find myself between two buildings that are too small, so I had to backtrack. And time's ticking on. Um, the only time that um, I started to get uh, a sense of where I was was um, by stopping and smelling in the air. Um, and you know what it was that was the odor that I was tuned in to smell? I'd visited uh, on one of my ex rounds on some excuse as a uh, foreigner sensor of mail and, and librarian or something, uh, the AIDS hospice that they had there. This was that the, it was quite incurable or not even treatable uh, at that time in the mid-90s. Uh, people were dying. And I remembered the smell of the ranks of dying prisoners in the last stages of death. It was kind of uh, sickly sweet, but definitely human smell of death to it. And I kind of felt that that was somewhere near me. Um, and I headed towards that. So again, another wall um, across quite a, a, a few feet uh, of ground another guard that could have been in a hut. And this, uh, again, is slowing me down. I have to judge whether the guard's in the hut or he's not. I get to the AIDS hospice. I couldn't resist a look inside. <laughs> and I, I, I looked through the windows, and it was as though there was nobody in there. But then a slight movement. And then I realized what I thought was the reflection of some bedsteads or knobs or something. It was the staring eyes of all these poor guys racked in pain from their diseased organs, just staring up into the light. Some saw me, and for their grace, they were the only prisoners in that jail that didn't raise the alarm because they were past caring about such things. <laughs> so, saved from death by those who are on their way to death at that point. Things are going okay, except for the time, but then I hit some real obstacles. Um, I had in front of me 
another a complete barbed wire fence top to bottom and the way over it was just too noisy. So what could I do? I had to dig under it and that's slow going. I wasn't really equipped for digging but um, <laughs> I scrabbled away not wanting to uh, damage my hands and, and used, I think I had some silly kind of spoon just for, for the metal of it. But I, I got enough underneath there so that I could get myself under it and then just inch the long ladder through it. But it's slow, so slow. Lifting it up a few inches, let it rest. Lift it. If I drag it too quickly, it'll, it'll catch on it. It's making me thirsty even think about it now. It's got my heart beating going up. I'm like, oh my goodness, what obstacle is he going to hit next? How are you going to get through this one? Well, <clears throat> the next one <clears throat> was um, one that I, I, I knew about, but... Uh, not having done it before, um, I th thought there might be some simple way. But people, if I describe it, people might be able to put themselves uh, where I was with the things at my disposal, a big ladder that I didn't really want to start breaking down and separating into pieces, much too time-consuming. But this prison, the whole sewerage system was an open sewer, and all of those little sewers... Um, led to um, an eight-foot-wide, we called it Mars Bar Creek because there were lots of floating turds in there. Uh, but there was also big rolls of barbed wire in it. And I'm on one side, the outer wall's on the other, but below the outer wall is only a foot and a half of ground. I can't... <laughs> this ladder is so heavy, Sean... If I prop it upright, which I can do by walking underneath it and slowly inching it up, if I drop it down against this wall, I'm stuck with it in that position. What do I do? If I climb up it, I'm not to the top because it's on the wrong angle. If I somehow wade through the barbed wire and turds of Marsbar Creek on the other side, I can't even reach it. The ladder's over Marsbar Creek. I can't get it on an angle where... It can cover the shit creek and then drag it because I'm up against this wall. I can't uh, lift it in front of me without it going into it. So I had to find a solution. And, uh, yeah, I have to believe people sometimes. A free copy of the signed edition to anybody who comes up with um, uh, an alternate solution uh, to the one which is described in Unforgiving Destiny as well as escape of how to get across Marsbar Creek <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a near on 30 foot ladder <clears throat> which is two it weighs more than me by the way this ladder so <clears throat> okay now here's another thing worth mentioning as I contemplated this if I'd have gone with anybody if Stan had decided to come with me we would have had the most I mean we argued about the, the amount of noise the oil was making as we hacksawed our way through these bars back in the cell, I knew that if you put oil on it, it's a little quieter, but the little tiny blades don't grip into the metal properly, so it slows down the cut rate. But I also knew he was a valiant helper. I don't want to get into a personal argument with him, you know, when the first bar's cut and there's no going back. He was even saying, leave it till the next day, we'll come back and cut some more. I looked at Mirage in the corner, 
He looked back at me. This is the guy that I'd said you know, one word out of you and you're finished. And he was going, it's okay with me. Yeah. Take a week. Yeah, it's fine. He's probably thinking I'll move cells or something the next day and let him get on with it. Like hell he would. He'd rat me out in a minute. Poor guy was doing 19 years for um, as a people smuggler, but he didn't have boatloads of people. He was just giving phony documents. Anyway, I don't want to diverge into whether the country should be real or not, but I'm still stuck on the wrong side of Mars Bar Creek. The solution to it, uh, which luckily I didn't have anybody to argue with about, was to break off uh, about six inches of the um, narrow point of my bamboo ladder. Um, lay the um, ladder in, in a gap over the barbed wire in the creek, but on a side angle. But uh, remember, I can't haul it over there normally. So I walk across it to the wall. I've got one end of the ladder that side. I hammer the little bit of bamboo into the ground and then with rope and tape secure it to one end of that ladder. Then um, with run back across the thing, attach rope to the other side of it so that uh, then um, it can be... <clears throat> It can sort of be moved, but I've got to do it in a kind of peculiar way with the half of the bamboo pole that I spoke of earlier that I was using to pull down the walls. So I'm flat up against the wall. My ladder's on an angle. I've pushed it under the rope attached to the far side of it and start levering it up slowly. So it gets about six foot high up enough so that it kind of swings freely. But I've got to be slow and careful because I don't want to splattered and tangled in the barbed wire of Shit Creek. And the other end, it's allowing me to pivot this because the other end's also secured, but into the ground with tape. I don't know where this idea came from, but it was there and it was working. So I ended up then with the whole ladder uh, on the side of the wall. At this point, there's the most subtle glow in the air of... Uh, dawn coming sometime it's it, it, I sort of half looked at my watch and it, it said five something so that's not good and I still haven't got over the outer wall and there's a 30 foot moat to swim across into what I always knew was the personal residences of the guards who worked in the place <clears throat> problem but I still have to get over the thing so to get this heavy ladder, which is now on my side, back up against the wall, I have to lift up one end of it and walk my way towards the other end of it, which is still anchored in the ground, pushing it up. So even though my weight isn't enough to lift it, uh, it was enough to, because it's wedged in the ground, to tilt it up to that side. And that little platform I was on, that edge against the wall, was enough to rotate it around. And so I had it there. Looked up. And I was about four, three and a half feet short of the top of the wall. Mm -hmm. eh, it wasn't too bad. It mm. seemed to be manageable. Mm. <clears throat> okay, now you can imagine what I looked like by this time. Um, You've been digging I, through the ground. I've, and... I've gone sort of 
like a rabbit uh, being chased by a fox uh, under some barbed wire. Uh, I've been sweating. It's a hot night. I've been lugging these very long things. And they're tiring, but I remembered a bit of Michael's advice. He used to be a champion pole vaulter uh, within the Commonwealth Games. He said, when you're running with a long pole, uh, try and lope. Both ends swing, and it sets up a rhythm. And if you match your rhythm to that, you can make good progress. Now, I don't know why I remembered how pole vaulters run around with their poles, but it was certainly the moment to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, still exhausting, and there are towers either side of mine. The question was, uh, did I put up my ladder right next to one tower so I was more distant from the other one to see me? But would that be making a noise under the guard in that tower and coming up right next to him, which he would have had the advantage <laughs> because, of course, whatever takes place between us then, he's got the option of just pushing my ladder away, hasn't he? And that's not going to end well. <laughs> I would have cleared Marsbar Creek but been embedded in the other side. So um, what would have you picked, by the way, Sean, at that moment? What would I have picked? I don't think I would have even got to where you would have got. I would have been busted. It's like, I don't believe in God, but hearing all these details you're giving me, the improbability of this, it's like someone must have been looking after you. I think so. I mean, remember, I really didn't know where I was. Yeah. And um, before the age of um, Google Earth, nobody could even tell me. Yeah. Big, they'd say. I walked 500 feet and it was still more war. From the bus coming back from court, it just never seemed to end. Uh, it's it's maze-like anyway. Where I, as it turns out, where I thought I was, I wasn't. <clears throat> I wasn't on the back wall at all. I was on the side wall. <sighs> but I didn't know that until I um, chose my moment, which is like now, because every moment to choose is now, yeah. when it's uh, coming up to dawn. <clears throat> Looked at the state of myself. Um, I had a, a, I couldn't use any of the water from Shit Creek. <laughs> uh, I drank uh, out of the two one and a half liter bottles. Uh, one had been uh, guzzled right through. Didn't need a pee, by the way. Uh, evaporated, you know, burnt up. <clears throat> Used a, a precious uh, two thirds of the remainder to clean myself up a bit and took out my treasured khaki long pants. <clears throat> They I'd kept uh, all along because they matched the color of the guard's uniform. And from a distance, I thought, it's a little bit, you know, you can't, they know prisoners don't wear uh, long trousers. There's a long trousered person. And I've got a white face as well, even though I've tanned myself up as, as well as I could. <clears throat> so I've changed into uh, clothes that I think, well, I'll have to put them back into the plastic bag, swim across the moat, uh, and then um, deal with what I find over there. Get to the top uh, of the ladder, lift myself just up over, and another beautiful sight in a way. It was an a fresh smell too. It seemed to be different. Luscious traffic fumes. Ah, yes. Beautiful traffic, Smell cars, of people, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Not a lot of time to enjoy it because that glow was fast turning into the tip 
of a shining sun. And my watch was telling me I've got uh, 16 minutes before the official time of the guards arriving for work would be. Not good. Oh, and by the way, you're in the wrong place, David. <laughs> you're just on the side, uh, about uh, 300 feet from the main entrance wall, the front wall of the prison. Okay. <clears throat> oh, and there's an electric fence in front of me. Uh, barbed wire topped. We all concluded, uh, John Russell did as well, that this would not have had a step-up transformer on it. Sure, a couple of people have been tingled and they lost their balance and fell off. But we figured it at uh, 240. Not that you, you can't hold on to 240, but it's not sparky. Uh, if you've got a transformer on it that puts it up to low voltage, uh, high uh, amperage, uh, then that's the thing that um, is really the shocking part of it. Um, cattle fences have the same thing. They're usually only on a, a few volts, but they're very high amps. Okay, so... Um, I get up to the top of that. Um, there's a steel pole on the top of the wall, some insulators, uh, some of them broken, the electric wire there. I've got some rubber padding mat, but I'm too short to flop it over the top. <clears throat> so, abandoned. And I, even though I put on fresh clothes, I'm starting to sweat into these. I know that can't be good. There's salt in your sweat. But... Uh, I've had no choice. I had to get on the tip of the ladder, hold on to the, the metal pole that held the electric wires, and then lift myself up, um, keeping hugged in. I've been working out a bit, but just you know, not putting on weight so I didn't weigh too much for this, and did manage to get to the, the top insulator and, and grip it from the bottom, and then just get my foot in under the first wire. Um, but it is again slowing me down. But here I had no choice. I had to take it in slow motion moves. Every place I put my hand was where I intended to put it, where my foot went, so on. So I could lift myself up, not swinging, because you're bound to go into it, and put one leg over it. They hadn't. If they'd made it another foot higher, this wouldn't have worked. But I could just angle myself around, and I felt through these khaki pants as my sweat was building up. The electricity was fringing on uh, surface static, and it, it was a little tickle. And I think I can understand how those of a nervous disposition um, would react to it. But I know, don't react to it. Uh, get to the top, do my swivel, get my second leg over. Good, except I'm still high in the air, and no ladder. <clears throat> How much of the army boot webbing have I got left? Almost enough. I tie it to the top of it. Um, I think... Oh, I know what I did. Yes, my hands were kind of... Um, when you burn yourself from rope burns, it takes off those layers, and what's left is a kind of shiny, subcutaneous layer, and that weeps a bit. Um, I didn't want to add to that because I didn't want to be handing over a passport later with a dripping hand. Um, spoils the casual tourist effect. Uh, purpose of visit? I was arm wrestling. I mean, I, I couldn't think of how that would go. So I used my entire little travel carry bag 
to, to hold on to this, this webbing. And then just slid to the ground on the other side, then looked before me at this 30 foot of inner moat. Looked at my watch, could hear the traffic of guards arriving for work. Imagine the trustees coming to my cell door, doing their first initial count because they get let out early. Um, go straight through the front. Now, what was at the front of the prison um, was a whole cottage industry of shops where they had carvings and um, decorative bits of crap. They sold some of the things from within the prison bakery, all of that. So they're, uh, they're usually connected with the, uh, the officers in some way. I've got to walk up through there without anybody recognizing me as a foreigner. It's got no purpose being here. Or, of course, a prisoner. But I had one very fine stage prop to hand that I had thought in advance of such a situation, not quite walking through the front. It was an umbrella, a pop-up black umbrella, quite small, but enough to cover my head. And there was the lightest of pitter-patter rain. A nice downpour would have suited me fine. But then again, if that had been happening, me and the electric fence would have got on so well. <laughs> so this was the right balance, God. Yeah, you've, you've chosen well, I almost said for once, but no time to get into an argument <laughs> with the Almighty over, uh, <laughs> over religion. So um, that meant I didn't have to swim across the moat. That meant I didn't have to uh, dress and undress and, and so secure my clothes in a plastic bag. Uh, I popped the umbrella up and walked under the guard towers. As I approached the first one, I could see... He, he had to kind of wake up because everybody's coming to work now. He's got to look like he's at his job. And he's kind of got curious, but I can't really look up completely, can I? Because my white face will be shown. Oh my God. I'm heading towards the front, but as luck would have it, some of the guards are arriving late for work, sometimes bypass if they lived at the back by coming around the side of the prison along the very narrow footpath that heads towards the front um, of that prison. So I guess he looked down and saw khaki pants, somebody with an umbrella heading towards the front gate, and that assuaged any doubts he might have. After all, do prisoners carry umbrellas in case they get a bit wet? Because <laughs> the hair is out of place or something like that? No, they generally don't. I think I saw a Bang of a Broad episode where the, the, the person, the prisoner escaped dressed as a woman who's like, like on a beach with an umbrella walking along. Oh, and then yeah. a guard, a guard recognized him and he ended up back in. Yeah. Uh, don't you find too in, um, in, in prison escape movies, oddly enough, the, the escape mechanics itself are always dealt with in 10 minutes or less. Whereas in real world ones, um, they are no, nothing like that. Um, the ones from the Supermax um, uh, took a, it, it took Harry, um, the one that came over to uh, try and get me, well, try, he was assessing whether I could be broken out from the courtroom. He was in the Supermax with me. That's where I'd met him in Australia. And um, he'd escaped from there or tried to, almost made it. But he was cutting his, uh, cutting bolts through uh, on sliding doors. His hands were bleeding. His hacksaws were breaking. 
it got into um, a kind of day room, uh, and there was a fridge there that they had for fridge and freezer for, for prisoners. And he found somebody had orange in theirs, and he said, I sucked that orange juice out, and it just, just was enough energy to keep going through the next <laughs> bit of cutting. Um, I'd, I'd helped Harry a bit in that. Uh, we had to trigger an alarm in the day room opposite so that they'd uh, dismiss it as being faulty, not the one that he was going through. Mm. So um, a useful tip, everybody. If you haven't got many resources but you need to time something to happen at a, a special time, you could do what I did back then, which was um, f I froze two shoelaces in a block of ice in the, the prison's freezer, oh. tied one end of it to the window, the other end to a laundry basket, which was teetering on the edge of falling off. We figured the ice had melt within about three hours or at some point before he was going out, fall on the floor, trigger the motion sensor, which it did, and it sent them down. So wow. there you have it, uh, a, a little uh, alarm activator <laughs> without the need for electricity, <laughs> melting ice. All natural. Yes, <laughs> we we try to be green thinking in these things, uh, despite all the drugs and killing. <laughs> That's all recycling. Anyway, where am I? Oh, yes, uh, down walking towards the front of uh, Klong Prem in Bangkok uh, with my umbrella, peeking a little underneath, saying to myself something out of the film Alien. You might recall Ripley is saying, Lucky, 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 lucky. <laughs> I kept saying those words like, okay, this is a long way to come to die now. Uh, but it, it, so I, I managed to get to the front and I knew from the bus trips returning to the prison, there was another kind of walkway across the moat, but it was at the front, so they didn't worry about that one. So I joined that one and there were people coming and going, setting up their stalls and um, their, their goods to sell. Plus, the guard that used to take my visa card to the bank and rang, uh, ran uh, Building Sex's accommodation section, he was arriving for work. I don't know what it was, but he looked at me and didn't dismiss it straight away as nothing. I could see he hunched down over his steering wheel as he drove in in the car I'd paid for. Um, something, you know, I think, I think uh, the way we walk... Um, is the body language is memorable in some way. Um, we all have a particular walk. I think I could recognize yours at, at a distance if I had, say, one other clue that it was possibly you. But there was something triggering him. But uh, the car needed to be handled, so he, he drove on. So you're still within the main entrance now. This prison uh, is set back from the main um, Bangkok to airport highway, a big eight-laner. Uh, and it's set back about 300 feet in some grounds that have got ponds. and. So the newly arriving grass. guards are driving into the complex. That's right. They're, they don't they're park driving outside in. the complex. No, they're, they're in the car parks uh, at the front of it. Gotcha. And, and that's where I am. If I look to my right, I can see people lining up for early visits, um, which is 
well, that's a whole other saga, the way they run their visits here. It's a screaming match between you know, two sets of bars separated by about 15 feet. Um, I get to the road. I'm starting to feel pretty good. To get across the highway, um, there was a pedestrian walkway. And I thought, yeah, better if, if I'm fighting with traffic dodging in and out, my luck, I'll get clipped by some truck or something and can't talk my way out of that one. I still got in my pocket the key to what uh, Charlie, my Chinese friend, has assured me will be a waiting passport. Does the flat even exist? I don't know that. <laughs> I like him. I think it's right. Anyway, uh, I got to the top of the uh, pedestrian overcrossing and thought, hell with it. I turned back to look. And I looked over. It was my first view from a height of this huge prison after over two years. Uh, I looked back at all the buildings and was saying to myself, oh, that makes sense now. You know, That's where I am. That's where that was. And another thought occurred to me. I'm looking back at perhaps 8,000 people in there just about forever. I've left them, but that's all still going on. The struggle for food, the, the battles over who to bribe and who to pay. Um, but that's behind me. But there it is. Remember that. So, so when you say you've left them, are you now having an overwhelming feeling of relief because you threw the main gate? Is that why you feel you've left them? Um, the moment at the window when I was outside of my cell was really the, the crucial difference. Because all the time that I'm escaping, I'm trying to escape, getting over inner walls and making things, uh, that, um, that I'm a person at work. I'm the character, as I'd made myself, of somebody who will do this at all costs. I can't surrender. I know what happens to people if surrenders. If I, if I slip, I'm not allowed to slip. If I fail to find a solution to some obstacle, I cannot. But isn't that pressure off then as you're at the main gate? It is. You're feeling something else. And you sort of humanize to some extent and, and start to think about real people with their real lives and... I wouldn't say I felt bad, but I realized too then that just as I was looking at that moment, the doors had been opened and somebody surely would look up and see a bent bar poking out into the, to the night or to the day by then. And that ladder still propped on the inside wall. And then what would happen? Who would they start with? Where would the interrogation begin? Uh, I didn't know it, but because mine was a kind of private cell, um, there was only one other in that whole building um, belonging to somebody who called himself a doctor, um, dead wife somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, he maintained that fiction in the place. He must have had a bit of money. He he talked his illnesses up into having his own cell. But other than that. Because I had my own, the guards just uh, walked past in the morning and uh, the trustees didn't do a proper count. It was kind of like, no, that's Westlake cell. That one's all right. I don't have to count that one. Maybe he's in the shower behind the screen. Don't. It's not a thing to think about. So they went on. 
And all the guys just went downstairs to begin their day, looking at each other, thinking, yes, yes. when's it going to happen? <laughs> and it's about um, 6.35 now. Um, I finished fooling around on top of the walkway and went back down to the other side of the road um, and thought, well, off to the apartment, see what's really there. I got into one taxi, uh, went to uh, a nearby address just to kill that off, walked around, found another one, and then went to the apartment. Point being that if somebody... I didn't want to get that apartment into trouble later on. If some taxi driver said, well, I took him there, then they, by elimination, break down who lived there and who might have been helpful. And it's very easy to get people into serious trouble anywhere, but particularly there. <clears throat> so um, the second taxi took me to that address, with which I was unfamiliar, but uh, I find the right door number, um, and uh, cracked open the key tag that contained the key. And remember, I put it in that tag in case I was caught trying to escape, and I didn't want to uh, have, an, um, have to explain away that key, what it belonged to. Um, there was actually somebody in the place. Uh, Charlie had thought it was so unlikely that uh, this had ever happened. He'd let um, a guy who was you know, working in Bangkok for a few weeks use the apartment. So I hit the chain and he let me in. Oh, hello. Oh, yeah, Charlie, say you get bail. Yeah, exactly. Just now, six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Gee, I feel a sudden, uh, can I use your toilet? <laughs> On my way in there, I'm thinking, wait a minute, Charlie's letting somebody live here. But I really think that behind some mirror in the toilet is it, uh, and Charlie been begging me not to um, make this escape. You know, He said, your chances are so small. You know, they like to talk in percentages in Asia. Uh, four or five percent, you know, and even that was, you know, bigging it up. And he was around when um, some guys uh, had their prison van hijacked on the way to court and broke out with armed motorcycle riders uh, and took off. You know how they got that lot? When the van was stopped by the armed men and the back of the van, which was on its way to court, was opened that guard stuck up and had his gun taken. The guys came out who were escaping. One of them changed his mind in that van. He went, and the other guys looked at him, went like, that's your choice, and they left. But what did they leave? They left <laughs> a human being with knowledge of their plans stuck on a prison van. Yeah, they should have forced him along, shouldn't they? Uh, at least got him out, out of the way one way or another. So, um, yeah, of course, when that prison van got back to uh, where it was going, um, uh, the, the, the guards would have gone into the van and said, anybody uh, know who else was involved in it? And a sea of fingers would have all pointed to this guy. <laughs> and he was questioned uh, robustly. Um, and eventually gave the um, the address. I mean, as if you'd stick to that, having left a, a weak point in that. But isn't this the part in all the movies where you know, you're sitting at home or in an audience saying, don't do it, you idiot. 
you know, you're leaving a clue, a weak point. And weak it was because uh, the police handed it on to a commando unit of the Thai Army who said, hmm, that's your dress. How many of them? Oh, they got guns, have they? Huh. Well, bad luck for them. They went in and apparently the locals made a killing in brass, scrap metal. There were that many spent shells okay. lying around and bobbing down the stairs of the place. They just, uh, nothing left of the people who had escaped. So Charlie knows this, and he's the one I've been trying to convince to leave this thing. So I've locked the toilet door, started to slide my hand up behind the thing. Nothing. Nothing. So far. <clears throat> then oh. slid my hand up. Oh, no, that's just a nail. And a bit of, wait a minute, that's something. So pulled it out, and there's an envelope. And a quick feel, impatient as I was by then, clock ticking, I knew it was a passport. But there's always something fresh. Uh, don't you find whenever you find the solution to one thing, there's some fresh thing to worry about? Like, you know, if, if you're doing a run or you've got a bit of business going on, you've solved that one. But a, a sea of other possible disasters appears, doesn't it? Yes, your mind focuses on what's possibly going to... Um hinder you next but my question is as you're feeling up for this thing and you're thinking it's quite improbable perhaps because he thinks you're not going to escape and you do find it what went off in your head when you found it um besides looking at the future prob problems my i well my this uh, first thing was um a kind of glowing love for charlie <laughs> That uh, whatever I find inside this envelope, he's tried to do something for me. He's had enough. I don't know what makes a person do something they think's a, a one in a million chance simply because you asked for it. And what do you think that was in this situation? I don't know. Perhaps he saw something in me that um, made him hold out hope that even however improbable it was or unlikely to succeed, that that would be a useful thing to have. And if anyone could do it, you could do it, perhaps he was thinking. Maybe. Or, or possibly he was just thinking, he, he's asked me to do it, I'll get it. It might be needed at some point for something. I don't know. But the next question was, what the hell does this thing look like? Uh, <clears throat> I opened it up. It was a British passport. Um, I can't really. McFarren? It had a Mc in it. Uh, Charles was the middle name, I forget. <clears throat> but that was what, not what I was looking for, the name. The photograph had been taken from my uh, radio operator's license, which is a certificate you get when you pass a test for the technical side of it. And it had a little photo in it. But if you copy a small photo into another small photo, it gets a bit grainy, so that wasn't great. But it was in the right place. The stitching uh, didn't look terrific, but I didn't have time to worry. It looked good enough to get me past uh, the barriers. Now, uh, I've told the guy who's still scratching his head in the morning, yeah, uh, got to go. Uh, see my lawyer. Oh. Right. None of it makes any sense. <laughs> oh, Where'd he come just to use the toilet? Anyway, mm. he was sleepy, went back to bed. Mm. So I'm off and I left and said, I won't need the key. Stupid thing to do that, wasn't it? 
I should have kept that key. Yeah, because he'd wonder why you were going in a hurry. It wasn't that. I mean, it was a door out of the rain. It was a place oh, I knew. Oh, a sanctuary. Yeah. You know what I think was going through my mind? The key's out of its little safe place now. If I'm carrying it, it's still the same problem. Explain this key. You're putting it behind you. Um, and I didn't want to have to explain that. Yeah. Or, uh, or do something stupid. So, anyway, be that as it may, I was in a hurry to get to the airport. Um, now, at the airport, of course, uh, I, I don't have any uh, a suitcase. I don't have any tickets. I have nothing. I've given all my money away to the guys back in there to protect themselves, the ones left in the cell. So I've got two ATM cards. Um, when my uh, friendly officer who got my cash for me for 10%, from the ATMs, he'd always give me that card back. So I had that one. Uh, and I had another one as a kind of backup one. Uh, <clears throat> but that wasn't an awful lot. I mean, and I could, one, um, neither of them, by the way, matched the name and the passport. So I can't use them for travel um, or to pay for tickets. I've got to get cash out of the machine. As I'm arriving at the airport, time-wise, back at the prison, the discovery's been made. Uh, Mirage has uh, let it be known. It wasn't me. It wasn't me straight away. I, I done my. He didn't want to be questioned later on and say, well, why didn't you come to us straight away? Um, I think, he, you know, he said, oh, the big white one threatened to kill me, you know. Uh, I don't know whether he did or not, but um, beside the point, I, it, you know, probably made things worse for Stan a little. Um, <clears throat> so they don't believe it. They go look at the cell. Yeah, then look around and somebody reports in, oh, the workmen have left their ladder on the outside wall, on the inside, part of the outside wall. And then it all falls together. The, the screws in there panic. Um, their livelihoods are under threat. Their commissions, their factories, their network, their little empire their safety. So um, a bunch of them uh, jump into a car and start heading for the airport. <laughs> they didn't even tell the police. They didn't want anybody. They thought if we're really lucky and he is going for the airport, then, um, you know, and, and we get him. We get him back and nobody's the wiser. What we do to him once we've got him, that's another matter, but uh, still. The Israelis. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, I've, uh, clearly I've got to the airport before them, um, and it's a big airport, big-ish. The old Don Wang airport, not like the new one. Um, I'm not calling anybody by phone this time because, well, that got me in there in the first place. Uh, not going to say goodbye to Tommy. No, no, not even to, uh, say anything. Well, not to a soul. I haven't got time anyway. I arrive at the airport. Uh, a friend of mine had uh, made some preparations there by leaving um, some carry-on luggage, uh, that sized bag, with uh, a, a toiletry kit in it and um, a couple of changes of clothes, socks and other. He'd left that in the long-term left luggage depository. You could leave things there for um, three to six months, I think. Um, and I had... Um, sandwiched in a, a greeting card or something that I was carrying. Yes, it was. 
Um, because it was a book. But anyway, it was sandwiched. It was the deposit slip to that thing. So, um, uh, but before I did that, I need to get some money and then and trying to get out of Bangkok before the next things happen. I put one ATM card in thinking, all right, uh, that'll be the ticket and the rest I'll take a second destination and refer to bank. The ATM machine rejected the card. Uh, the next one. Now, I've got almost nothing else. This has to work. I've keyed that one in, and it's live. It's paid. I've hit the max, $500. That spat that out. I've gone over and uh, picked up my luggage, um, gone back, looked up at the big board, where can I go to? Um, and you can imagine what would be your priority in such a situation. My priority would be, um, oh my goodness, I would just be trying to get the hell out of there somehow before the guards arrived. But um, Well, you're right, timing. timing you want the yeah. first available flight that hasn't actually closed, Yeah, uh, that might even be boarding, but they'll still sell tickets to. Okay. Because you've got to go to the ticket counter uh, and get one or... Sometimes with some check-ins, there's a ticket counter at the end of it, and they'll, mm. they'll take a cash payment for that. Right. So uh, you don't want anything where um, there's elaborate procedures. If it had been a Middle Eastern airline, that would have been a long haul. But I didn't have money for that. I didn't yeah. have money for a cheap flight. This was a one-way, worst-case kind of ticket buy. It's like you're at the last hurdle mm. now. The um, only thing that was taking off within the next hour that I could afford was uh, Singapore. Yeah. Disadvantage, they already have the death penalty for, for drugs and a cozy relationship with uh, Thailand in which I, I would have, if detected, would have been, uh, I would have been brought back. Do you, so, think, do you think going the that's perhaps the guards would have assumed you wouldn't have gone though then because of those reasons? I think their like, automatic uh, thought would be, okay, foreigner, English, Australian, Go to some Western country. Yeah, that, that's it, there's a plan, surely. So they'll Tickets be at the British Airways gate. Yeah. yeah, they'd be they'd be looking at all those flights. Not yeah, he's going to a country that would hand him back straight away. Yeah, and as as almost at every point in this event, the escape, something that seemed a disadvantage, being by myself and not having to argue decisions. Um, I've, lots of other things, the things I had available to me. Again, here, the limitation of not having the money turned out to be the wisest thing. Mm. If I'd have had all of the money available and then been able to go on a long-haul flight, because that would be the instinct, wouldn't it? Get out of Asia. Get out of the, the danger zone. If I'd have got onto a flight that was going to be in the air um, for at least, I don't know, 12 hours to get to Europe, when um, my friends back at the various embassies would have been told about it sometime in the morning and asked, uh, had you, any of you people issued him with a passport? No. Ah, where do you think he's going? Some smarty would have been sitting around at lunchtime saying, you know what we can do? If we get the, um, the passenger list for all the departing aircraft this morning, uh, from I don't know, 9.30 onwards or from the beginning, from 6 o'clock, uh, 
And then we divide up the nationalities of those passengers and ask each of our embassy colleagues from those nationalities to run that passport number under lost or stolen passports. And if we get a match, that's our man and that's our flight. Were you not tempted to not go to the airport at all and to head for a border and cross as a tourist? Isn't What, what countries does Thailand border with? To the north, there's Laos um, and um, Cambodia and Vietnam on the other side. Would it be easy Burma to get lost in those other. countries? Mm. Yes, but in a way... Um, it didn't work for Gary Glitter, did it? No, no, no. It didn't. <laughs> it Wanna be my game, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of internet jokes with him around, wasn't it? Uh, I did think... Um, um, my my solid friend Lee could uh, hide me out somewhere, but um, I was past that point of trusting anything or leaving anything to anybody else's error. If I was going to die, I wanted it to be you know out of something I did directly. And, and in the past, most of my woes had come about because I'd left some element of something in the hands of others. Uh, so so I, I didn't want that. So I'm not on a long haul. I haven't left myself open to being detected by um, process of elimination. I'm on the flight to Singapore, but I've got to get onto it. I go to the, uh, I've got the ticket. I, I go to the um, immigration, and I'm in front of um, a rather too efficient-looking immigration man, not the usual idiot. He's got my passport. He's typed it up put in the date of birth, passport number, entry date, and he stopped clicking. These are looks you don't want. Well, this is how this story started, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah it's like an elliptical yeah. plot now. <laughs> uh, at an airport somewhere with bad things happening over a document. Yeah. And it ain't the first time that's happened either. <laughs> It'll happen later on in Pakistan, <laughs> Lahore Airport. Hey, it was even creepier. Mm. This life hanging in the air, because I know if there's something wrong here, and I'm thinking, Charlie, is there really such a thing where your friends have a guy on the computer? Or is it like, you know, you see that in movies, don't you? No, we've got a man down at the airport, he'll fix that. Uh, our man on the computer. There isn't a man on the computer. The only man on the computer that anybody's ever, is some nerd watching porn having a wank out in the suburbs. <laughs> the only man on the computer. Anyway. Um, those thoughts are running through my head when he abandons whatever thought was in there, stamps the thing, and the most satisfying thwump of stamp oh, on paper. Oh, God, you must have been I like, I said, this is the last <laughs> hurdle now. It seemed. Um, uh, I got on, uh, got on board, um, strapped myself in. Uh, a steward came along and said, uh, can I get you something? What? <laughs> I was thirsty by then. Uh, and only when I got it did I look at my hands, which were really quite a mess. But not on the outside, fortunately. So, When you retrieved the passport from the toilet, did you, were you tempted to like, have a shower and clean yourself up a bit or do anything like that? Or were you just pressed for time? I think, no, not really. Um, I didn't stink or anything. Okay. There's nothing visible. There was no Mars uh, bar stuff. No, no, no. I'd kept out of the creek. <laughs> yeah. Um, the litre or so I'd used cleaning my face and hands up, 
and uh, it seemed to do the job. Mm. I just didn't want to use up what would invariably surely turn into another hour. Yes. Um, and be even weirder with that guy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, I've come in not only to have a pee, but to use the shower, take a dump, and then uh, leave him with it. And throw my key at you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were meant to be a girl. <laughs> <laughs> at least the ladyboy. <laughs> yeah. Or something close enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, um, sitting on the plane is a delay. Oh, no. And the words from the captain. Uh, Ah, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are waiting. Well, there is with one passenger. What does that mean? What? Didn't catch that bit? Something? I'm not going to inquire, make a scene. I just have to sweat it out. But eventually, the even more satisfying sound of the ceiling of the aircraft door and the thwump. And the plane takes off. Before the next set of fears and questions comes to mind. I've got now an opportunity, Sean, to have a good look at this passport and see what it's made of. Nope. Wrong stitching. <sighs> yeah, can't tell with the ultraviolet. Is it there or is it not? It has to be. Yeah, they certainly do that. Pixel looks dodgy. Uh, kind of see a wrinkle in the paper where they've peeled it off. Yeah, you have to. But it's the only one I got. <clears throat> so uh, I arrive at Singapore. Um, Let me ask you this though first. So, what are the consequences of those things you just described when you arrive at Singapore? Could they potentially say this is fake and send you back? Well, the first thing they'd say is, uh, is suspicions that the passport's wrong. Yeah. Um, and then, could you wait here while we check it? Yeah. That wouldn't go well. So they'd come back and say, well, what flight was he on? Uh, the one from Bangkok. Mm. Kindly explain. Well, I'm stuck there, kindly explaining, and I haven't got a, another one to use and or or a nationality that I can claim, which will do me any good. Yeah. I, I found over the years that um, the British do something that very few con- other countries will do in a hurry. They're quite happy to issue you with a passport under any circumstances, even if you're on the run or or whatever. I've known a few people to crawl their way in there. But on the bad side, they don't want to know you and won't help you in any other way. Um, There are individual exceptions to that. When we uh, find ourselves eventually in Karachi, there's one or two embassy people there that were helpful. But um, so I... Got an hour flight to uh, uh, worry about all that. Um, but again, it's really, I think, down to, I think, the ultraviolet impressions. There's to be two sets. On a British passport, uh, at that time, there were a green background ultraviolet reactive ink that shows up um, over the main pages and around the edge of the photograph little pink crowns that go over the both sides of the edge which had so that was two different kinds of inks that uh, would be needed to make that convincing and I handed over and I'm looking at there's the door of freedom it's not even anybody on at customs that's it I can see it bright day nice day guy looking why is he still looking at that he doesn't like the photo it's a bit grainy it's not the kind of photo 
anybody would happily use, you know, a second-generation picture. <clears throat> but I see his hand in slow motion go into the ultraviolet <laughs> scanner. Oh. <laughs> and as it hits the tip, I don't see anything. Oh. But as it goes on, it glows in the glorious oh. pink and green of freedom. <laughs> Good enough for me, he <laughs> seems to say. It might be a complete phony, but good enough for Singapore. You must have some money on you somewhere. <laughs> welcome, welcome. You know they've got the biggest value denomination note of any country in the world? They have a single note of 10,000 Singapore dollars. That must come in handy for drug deals. 5,000 pounds. Wow. Mm, I don't think you'd like to throw that across the counter at Starbucks. <laughs> but, um, and it's kind of biggish looking. But that shows faith in the world economy, doesn't it? Have you noticed people in this country very much against large denomination notes? They've been dancing around getting 100 out for years and never done it. Well, the US federal government, it's a money laundering issue for them to keep it low, isn't it? Yes, they haven't issued the $1,000 note for, I think, 20, 30 years. Yeah. They're still around, but uh, they're never withdrawn exactly. Yeah. even I think there's even 400 or so $10,000 notes mm. still in, in private hands. Anyway, um, <laughs> there it is. I'm in the Singapore sunshine. What's the first thing you do? Get a taxi. <laughs> Get away from the airport. So are you able to access more money now through the ATM? No. Um, I, I'm i trying to remember how I got around that. I did, actually, mm. yes. But it seemed because I was in a different country that um, the dud one still didn't work, but the one that gave me 500 definitely gave me more money there. So where's that money coming from at this point? This money's coming from... Um, a friend of mine in Australia okay. who's, who's given it back to other friends and, and it's come to me. Wow. You know, that one of the, the few who were left saying, oh, no, he'll figure something out. Uh, I'm sure he will. It wasn't that. I, I guess they just didn't want to. Um, you can imagine if it was a friend of yours and the hat had been passed around and you didn't put in 50 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you heard later on he died on the wall for want of a nail. Uh, <laughs> some bastard didn't put in. Didn't it? <laughs> um, you know, it was still coming. Mm. And, um, of course, uh, later on, it kind of flooded in. Um, once people, uh, old scallywag Once they knew you were at large. Uh, the, you know, it made the Australian papers and some other ones around the world. They and, stayed um, I I only had to ask, and money poured in. Yeah, I, just one person gave me twenty thousand. No, I mean, give it back to me yeah, whenever. You're like a hero though, in the criminal um, community. Uh, you know, it's amongst that world. Yes, um, facing death and, and got out of it. It's the ultimate courtroom win. You know, uh, acquittal by other means, as a friend used to say. <laughs> I, I acquitted myself. Um, so I get in a taxi, go to the central town, break that connection, walk around a bit, uh, pick out a hotel from one of the directories. Nothing too flash, nothing too cent. You know those hotels that are slightly on the fringes of the urban inner, that are never hugely busy, but they're used by travelling salesmen, businesses, uh, things for conferences. Good, 
but not flash, not, not ambitious people in there. Check in there. I was on my way to the room, and I stopped at uh, the gift shop, bought a pair of swimming trunks and a towel, went into the room, slung my bag in there, uh, changed into the swimsuit, went to the, the rooftop where the swimming pool was, and stood at the edge thinking, well, <clears throat> I've avoided Marsbar Creek and the great moat. I think I owe God a swim somewhere. <laughs> so I dived in one end, stayed right underneath, touching the underneath of the pool. It was deserted, by the way. Got to the other end. It wasn't a very big pool. And then hauled myself up, dripping with luxurious cool water and some Moluccan Straits wind pouring in. Turned around to look at the pool and thought, well, you have to dive in sometime. <laughs> uh, and that was it, uh, I thought. <laughs> Uh-oh. And until um, I spent a kind of, I thought I'd be, I should have been completely exhausted. I should have slept like a baby. But uh, I didn't, and at first my uh, friends and supporters didn't believe I was out. Then The only secure way I had of communicating with them had been tightened up because of the flood of con artists who'd approached them. Everybody and their dog had come up with you know, uh, some plan to get me out or... From the Asian side, people had come in and said to Max, my friend, and one-time accountant, and, and my, everybody had been approached with, I know somebody in high places, their names would astound you. I know people in low places, their abilities are astonishing. Um, all that sort of crap. Um, and they'd drawn a line that they were not paying for any more of that. Um, I'd not said a word about this thing. Uh, I would have liked to say, the try is on, so be prepared. I, no, I was sticking to the crook's book of rules like it was chiseled on what is it, uh, gold plates from uh, uh, those people in uh, Omaha, no, Utah, Mormons. The Mormon isn't it? book of... Uh, yes, yeah. their book was supposedly uh, found on, on gold plates. Joseph uh, Adams, was it? Yes, yes, uh, a bit recent. I like my religions <laughs> to be a little older than that. Uh, yeah, at least a thousand years or so. Um, make it two. No Scientology then? <clears throat> um, I think if L. Ron Hubbard were alive today, he, he'd admit that, look, it was a joke. It was, uh, yeah, it was a novel. This was not meant to be true. I mean, it, it was, I think. He, he was writing fiction there. Well, he has to write fiction because <laughs> yeah, the CIA and everybody else won't let. Yeah, okay. CIA can't keep a secret anyway. <laughs> Look what happened to Howard Hughes's submarine adventures. He only did that fishing for that downed Russian sub on the proviso that the story never leaked. He sent a oil exploration ship to go look for it. Ah, somebody blabbed. No wonder he ended up wearing Kleenex boxes on his feet in some Bahamas <laughs> hotel, a long beard. It was strange anyway. So nobody believed that... Um, uh, I was out until they read it in, in the papers for themselves. And then they uh, followed um, the protocol, 
which was you go to the uh, Ace print shop down in the street, and they not everybody had a fax machine in those days, and they're gone altogether now, aren't they? But so you could use a, a local printing office for to collect your faxes. So that was what I'd do. I'd send a fax to this one, um, which would eventually end up in Michael's hands, and they all knew that it was fine. So uh, then, but I, I realized too, um, it, it's astonishing how quickly you not shrug off, but uh, put behind you uh, very difficult and awkward things, things. Because you, well, I certainly did, I realized that um, in very short time, it could all still go bad. Uh, I've got one passport, it's not very good, and the name of that passport could be worked out without uh, extraordinary difficulty. Okay, it wouldn't be found uh, if I'd stayed in the country. Instead, <laughs> possibly three or four other uh, Westerners using fake passports that day would have been swept out. Um, because it does reveal a lot. You know that as we speak, 45,000 people around the world are traveling this day on falsified documents. Wow. Um, passports issued by governments. So it's um, a labor-intensive way uh, of chasing somebody that way. I had to get out of Singapore and then leave um, for somewhere. Um, I hadn't really thought that far, honestly, because, I don't know, it felt like it was a kind of curse on the whole plan to be, it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket and then thinking what you'll do with the money. You're not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> it's the lottery ticket you lost down the back of the sofa that is the one you win that you never even gave a second thought to. Um, that, that is the only chance of the one you're going to win. So planning, I, I was in relative safety. I was in, in a place um, that I could communicate and get money. And, of course, the very first thing I asked for was fresh passports. This uh, is still in Singapore. Still in Singapore. And the next day I saw the article in the Straits Times uh, that, uh, just a small piece, you know, column five, um, Don, Daniel Westlake escapes from a Thai prison uh, from Bangkok Central Jail. And well, that's not very big. That's not much. I contacted some friends in London and sent off some messages to the Australian and the British embassy. And that lawyer who was the, in Bangkok, the American who was the de facto bug listening device of the DEA, I knew anything I told him in confidence would go straight back to... Uh, so the point of these communications was just to um, dissemble, to make them believe I was somewhere else. So... Um, uh, I think the Australians are made it look like this message came from France somewhere and, and the one to the British. Um, I think the Australians for their hospitality during their Easter week uh, meal. They, I think I mentioned, haven't I, that the um, embassies used to put on a, a bit of a feast for the inmates, yep. uh, no matter how sickly and dying they were. Uh, and the Australians did quite a bit with the families used to come in as well they'd set up a a, a picnic table um 
as you'd expect, the French put on the best eating. Americans did a good one for Thanksgiving. Um, a lot of whining going on there, but um, mostly by the staff between each other, if if they found it uncomfortable. Where have you been? World headline news at this point, and imagine these articles have got your picture on the, on them. Are you now tempted to change your appearance? Not really. Um, I think perhaps uh, I, I was. Were we talking about it some time ago? Being wanted, it is never good to uh, run to an isolated spot. Perhaps some uh, people attempted to go to a caravan park in Wales or um, check into a flea bag in Paddington. Um, they'd probably be okay in London. But the reality is... Um, you have to behave, your your best defense is to behave out of character with somebody who's on the run. You can check into a, a reasonable hotel, um, mostly um, by having the booking go ahead. doesn't matter if you've done it 10 minutes ago, as long as it's already there when you walk into a reception. People are kind of programmed to expect certain things from people on the run. They might go into a hotel, but there'll be no booking. And they'll say, uh, can I have a room with no windows? Or um, have you got anything with a ladder <laughs> out of the bathroom? Or I don't know what. But um, I've been places where um, witnesses to something, I've discussed a story in the paper with them, and they have no memory um, that um, people around me um, were actually part of it or the photograph of being nobody much looks like the picture I suppose look for you to the obvious thing that would change your appearance in a second your style these days is the uh, um, the smooth look if I can put it like that <laughs> getting a wig yeah you get a rug and El Elton John uh, style. a bit of a moustache and <laughs> At, at the risk of looking like a 70s <laughs> copper. <laughs> uh, 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 that would be all that's required. Do you think I'd suit a Pablo Escobar moustache or a Hitler? Um, oh, you do a great Hitler, I bet. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that would be a guess at parties. Um, We're going to get the video um, deleted <laughs> off YouTube now. It's like the, the dog, isn't it? The saluting. Uh, <laughs> and you... I, and, and you're going once with who um, had grown this fulsome beard and he finally decided to shave it one day and he, he left the Hitler one day. <laughs> oh, God. But he had such a face, I was cracking up every t time he turned around. It was, uh, hi, Wayne, if you're out there. Well, when Just Escobar was dead, they shaved the Hitler moustache on him and took photos of his corpse of the Hitler moustache. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I don't suppose he would have minded the comparison terribly much. Um, and as for desecrating corpses go, that's pretty mild treatment, isn't it? Yes. You know, if they'd put a broomstick up his bum or something like that and dumped a wig on that one, then you'd have a cause for complaint. Um, so if I'm on the still, run, I should just keep my head smooth. Is that what you're saying? Don't. No, I think, I think you'd ha um, because it's... It is a memorable feature in yeah. that sense, and yeah. it's part of a certain face shape. But that's the good thing. It would only take that wig to alter the shape of your face, yeah. and that would do it. Uh, that would be enough. So you're saying that you just fit in to the background? If you're I, not standing out in any way, really? Or if I see somebody, I engage them 
in a moment's conversation as one does with somebody in a shop or where there's some services to do with travel. And if I take the right approach, um, within 30 seconds I'm talking to them as part of somebody, as part of their world. The escaped villain is not part of their world. But if I'm talking to, um, uh, I don't know, just somebody at a travel agency, for example, not that they exist anymore, but at an airline counter, I'd be saying, oh, you've got the Cisco systems in. They drive me mad at the office. <laughs> that is enough of a line to lift you out. Of, your picture could be there. And um, once you put yourself as a you know, wage slave too, um, there's, there's the end of that. So it's not just You're physical not appearance. It's adjusting people's minds, isn't it, for yes. what you say? Yeah, very much so. I um, arrived back in Australia once um, with oh, a load. Uh, and it was early days, so I still had some, and there were two couriers. And they were looking to me for directives, I, because I'd go first to pick the immigration man as to who would be best. And this was done by experience and on some basis. So um, I picked one because I knew he'd be fine on the day. And that is very much connected with what we were talking about before, where you fit in. In front of me, there were probably half a dozen minor-level politicians and upper-level bureaucrats. They weren't standing there in front of this guy having to wait their turn one by one because this is a man who assesses your customs treatment. You give him your customs form. He sees where you've been and then um, dictates what sort of treatment you're going to get searched or not. So this guy uh, at immigration had had the little runaround fixer for this group of hacks and politicians, th uh, force all these passports on him, run it through. No, don't look them up, just stamp them through. Be bullied into it. Um, so that when I arrive, you know what my attitude is then. Mate, and to think we pay taxes for those bludgers. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Yeah. You got anything? No foreign, do I? <laughs> Bloody good to be home. Beer up, uh, and that's it. I sail through, and I signal the other guys uh, to come through because um, I was on Australian passport, so I adjusted my accent and, and manner. But I took his side um, against his enemy, and that made me all right. Yeah, I could One do no us. wrong. Yeah, and I think if. Um, People who are uh, nervously wanted um, uh, just don't don't take that obvious step to. Um, they think blending in means dressing in a certain way or um, uh, not doing things to stand out. But you you stand out if you're not part of something, if you're not part of a group, uh, if. Um, if you see something in a field that you know something about, if you come across some tech nerds and you know something about that, good. If um, if wandering past an art gallery, uh, 
yeah, dig around for a, um, a roll neck jumper uh, and give yourself, you know, bad ear hair somehow uh, <laughs> and go straight in, shaking your head at every picture you see. The cravat. Derivative. You, know, <laughs> you will be part of that art crowd. And uh, even if you are a loner, that fits in rather well with that lot of uh, sad sacks anyway, doesn't it? So um, I don't mean you, Olive. It's an uh, uh, artist friend of mine that... Uh, I guess some art crowd trolls now. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does. He, he, he does some quite good stuff. Uh, so how long are you in Singapore? Uh, as little time as possible. Uh, as I said, I didn't sleep uh, very well that night. Okay. Um, we asked, but he, I ate... But I thought it was good food at the restaurant there. Uh, gave me the runs. I was so used to my French cook that I was eating poorly in the real world compared to the hellhole <laughs> at Bangkok where, you know, Noel would be down with a supply truck and cart, which they used as a, a death transport in the afternoons for the injured. But anyway, that was hosed down, so it was no problems for the next day. Um, and he'd be uh, arguing over the quality of the meat and the fish and saying, oh, David, I don't think that tonight's on. Yes, yes, just use your own judgment. You know. um, uh, we didn't have a sommelier for the wine, but uh, <laughs> still, I've never been a drinker. Um, no, it took me a while to adjust just my physical self into that world, and it was only the next night um, that I was um, kind of sleep caught up with me but I, I went to a travel agent to um, uh, find a place that had handwritten tickets I didn't want to be on the airline's computers under the dodgy name of the passport I'd used I couldn't use the one I'd been sent by express courier because it had no entry stamp into um, Singapore so I'm stuck with this if you want but how can I not leave a trail on the computers before I get on only don't buy the ticket from the airline. Buy it from an agent who, um, what's that word for it? Uh, it means collating it. The way they use where a whole lot of little travel agencies used to um, go to a consolidator, yes. They used to get all the tickets for lots of airlines. They'd get them at a discount. That long gone business of being a travel agent and tickets used to work like that. So I went to a really hokey place and I sat down and I thought, yeah, this looks like it's for me. There was little tattered flags and a faded Chinese calendar on the wall and tacky knickknacks on his desk. Clearly a one-man operation except for his auntie or something. Came in Tuesdays. And he was a wreck. Uh, layers of fat under his chin and whiskers and bitten fingernails. Yes? <laughs> Pleased to meet you. You're my man. <laughs> Name, as I'm keeping the passport away from him. So he's written the ticket out using... My middle name is the last name, Charles. So I know that if it gets entered in anywhere, it's, they won't have any advance notice mm. about it, at least that. It was Pakistan International Air. Mm. Where was I going? I was heading for as deep and lost as I could imagine. And that takes me back, wow, <clears throat> two podcasts ago and back to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border in Baluchistan where I'd met... Mir Norjan Magsi, tribal lord. And it was into his hands that I was delivering myself and safety. You think the story is just ending? It is just beginning. <laughs> yes. Uh, you must be exhausted, David. 
Well, things did get more difficult. And Do you have time to answer any of these questions of course, that have come if, in? Uh, yeah, so that's where we go in in the next podcast. We're going to the badlands of Pakistan, Afghanistan, torture in Karachi. And if you've enjoyed this series so far, in the description box below this video, please support David by clicking over to his YouTube channel and subbing and clicking over to Amazon. If you have bought his book so far, we would really appreciate you leaving some Amazon reviews. We've got Escape and Unforgiving Destiny. I've read them both. Excellent. I uh, might say that um, the new book, Unforgiving Destiny, does kind of cover everything. It's probably a better place to start than Escape, which is kind of narrowly focused in that if way. If you want the broad picture. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody contacted me when you looking at questions, asked for a signed copy. Yeah. So I, I directed him to my davidmcmillan.net site. Okay. There's a contact page. Good. So I'm quite happy to uh, sign a copy and send it if somebody wants one. Yeah, they've just got to uh, PayPal you the cost and the um, postage. Yes, oh, yes, okay. oh, yes, yes. That's, that's, that's good. And if you're looking to hire David for work in the South London area, a guy who has escaped from Thai death row, I'm sure he can fix whatever you want fixing up. Yes, from uh, contact he, through the website. From bad locks to uh, safe places to leave <laughs> treasures. <laughs> People will be just hiring you just to come out so they can hear you speak to them. <laughs> if you'd like to hire David out to speak to you, just he's available for that as well. I suppose so. <laughs> um, not oh, too late, not too early. <laughs> Right, we, we appreciate all your questions that you're sending in. Put more questions in the comment section below if you'd like us to ask him in future um, episodes of this never-ending series. Before I get to this section of questions, I've got a quick question for you. What happened to the Swede? Is he still in a Thai prison? Uh, Sten uh, transferred back to Sweden. It took him six years rather than... It's possible to do it in four, but it took him six. What happened to him after the escape was he was chained up, leg irons, not particularly heavy, but enough, and moved to building five, which is a kind of isolation building. However, uh, as I'd hoped, the Swedish embassy is not to be uh, sallied with, and they stepped in on his behalf, and he was there three months before um, being moved to the foreigners' building. He returned to uh, Stockholm. Uh, he effectively transferred his sentence there, but he did altogether 12 years. So I got a slightly grumpy letter from him saying, well, I probably should have come that night and all of that kind of thing. Um, uh, and I said, yes, of course, but thought, hell, God, what would I have done? Uh, uh, he didn't have a passport. They wouldn't even give me a photo so I could get one. So he was nervous. Is he alive and well now then? Free? Uh, yes, he's got a girl. Settled down. Kid. Yep. Um, Is there any chance he might watch this? Um, some possibility. Uh, Escape has been translated into Swedish, so he might come across Well, that. if you are watching this, your valiant helping that night just man you have got the heart of a mountain lion and i praise you no end for what you did helping david get out man you are such a brave soul yes sir 
Jens, that's his real first name. Yeah. Um, you can rely on me anytime you want anything. Don't worry about the obstacles. <laughs> they won't stand. <laughs> Do you know what happened to the rest of the cellmates? Uh, yes. Uh, Calvin, the American, um, went... <laughs> you know, he woke up in a, you can imagine, not long after he got to sleep that night, I was cutting my way out of the bath. Looked up. Fuck. <laughs> Lit a cigarette. <laughs> and, and did stand up. And I was a bit, I suppose, um, not rude to him, but I didn't need his help. He offered to help. You know, he started steadying one of the tables or something. I appreciated that. He, um, his, his story is kind of a, a standalone adventure anyway, but I did think I, I mentioned that he'd come to Thailand because he was working in a rehab clinic as a nurse there. One of his uh, wards or charges in there, he uh, was a guy who told him the story in his delirium of withdrawals uh, that he'd hidden a kilo in the rooftop of a, a Bangkok hotel. So Kevin, uh, barely uh, nursing a, a quiet habit of his own, a funny place to work, ends up being thrown out of the rehab place and just before Christmas um, heads over to um, Thailand to retrieve said kilo from rooftop. Um, and he, let's see, out of the whole of Bangkok, would you need any help? Nope, you can stand on two chairs. But if you did, Need help? Who would be the worst person to enlist? Let's see, somebody who could keep a secret and was honest. I know, I'll get a taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> Hence prison. Anyway, he went back, got himself a couple of habits off and on, drifted around. Uh, I was in touch, sent him the odd hundred here and there. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to check on uh, what happened to Calvin. And give you an update. What about your height at disadvantage, Butler? Well, um, I even sent him visitors. Um, uh, girls that towered over him, despite <laughs> this. <laughs> he had an interest in uh, the art. Uh, he used to duplicate people's baby pictures and things. Um, so I was always sending over... Um, I, it seems nobody had the heart to treat him badly because he was really just like a kid in, in size. Oh. Even the most callous Thai guard couldn't give him more than a token slap. I mean, it seemed like, well, you know, even the worst of them will pick on somebody, you know. Um, no, he was uh, moved around and uh, it, I think he could have swum out of any chains that they might have put on him <laughs> or wouldn't have been able to move, one of the two. <laughs> Walk around and, in the circles. The, what was it, Mirage? Did he... Uh, Mirage, uh, he served out um, the oh, most of that nineteen years. Did he uh, get any reduction for sounding the alarm? Uh, well, he sounded it rather too late, uh, so uh, they didn't understand why he didn't start screaming in the middle of the night. Okay, and he did explain that he had pretty practical reasons. Uh, not wanting to have to view his entrails from the inside out, that uh, but they didn't accept that. So he was no friend of this, um, and eventually um, he moved, retired to Bangladesh somewhere, where, where it's, I think he's dead. 
and there was the young prisoner who looked like a teenage girl. Do you, any idea what he, happened there? He um, didn't serve long. The Chinese organised something or other uh, to get him out. He, he was uh, paroled out and um, grew up and came out of the closet <laughs> about the age of 21, I believe, um, um, doing some sort of modelling. Okay. Is that a polite word? <laughs> <laughs> right, Lewis Spear. David, did mm. you ever consider giving it all up and going straight? What motivated you to carry on? Mm. I think, um, imagine, is it Lewis, is it? Lewis Spear. Mm. Well, let's use the analogy of a spear at your back. If somebody's running with a spear at your back, do you contemplate stopping? <laughs> um, I think I think not. And and really, okay, I I should have put up after the the long stretch uh, of being night and day surveillance and having my life trashed and uh, uh, forgiving everybody in my past. I didn't feel like it. <laughs> Specifically when buying and selling drugs, this is from Jonathan, did you have any close encounters or near-death experiences? Um, not the kind of near-death experiences which people uh, generally talk about, which is sort of sense of suffocating or some medical thing. But I think uh, the inquirer is asking, did somebody threaten to kill me? Yeah. Many, many times. Um, but... Um, I started to catalogue in my mind the uh, the way people did that, and it always seemed comic. And because I was giggling, um, it kind of either annoyed them or took the edge off it. Either way, it, it gave me some advantage. And because I, somebody stuck a gun in my face and I cracked up, I don't, I, and now what happens? Have you thought this out? <laughs> Realize you're going to get covered in bits of brain here. And do I care? No, it'll be over for me in a second. That gun doesn't work, by the way. Hmm? Um, so the, the, if you, for most of the time, uh, I'd be worried about somebody tying me up. That'd be bad because they could play with you then, couldn't they? So you've got to avoid that. But... Um, where they've merely threatened you with death. Uh, somebody ran in uh, once uh, threatening to, uh, someplace it was, like, David, I'm going to kill you. Um, yes, I said, you know, do you want something to eat first? Because we've just cooked lunch. You know? But no, this is serious. But then it's not, is it? Um, because the, the first social exchange of, of being threatened hasn't worked. Um, sometimes, but I've never been in a situation, these are, are people who have got the wrong information or have been manipulated into thinking something wrong. Um, and people, if they were serious about killing you, you'd be dead and that was it and, and nothing would happen. So yeah. if, it, if it comes to a situation where... Um, there was uh, sometimes a couple of times there's been attempted robberies, um, but usually there's little signs that people are going to turn on you. Um, people are very fussy about the location in which they 
do that volta fece, as the Italians call it, and pull out a gun and say, I'm not paying, I'm taking everything with that. They're very location concerned. They want you in a particular part of a room or a place. A couple of times people have changed plans at the last minute and said, no, we're in room 306 of the Bellevue Hotel. And I'd say, well, I hope you enjoy it because I'm not coming there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but the deal, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, why would you go to a hotel room? Come back to the restaurant where I'm eating, have a dessert. <laughs> not too late for brandy. I mean, what the But we've got the stuff. Oh, good on you. Well done. Yeah. Bring it with you, why don't you? You can leave it in the toilet if you feel nervous about it. Um, it it's... Mo- if, if Look, you must have found yourself, Sean, that the, the dodgier characters uh, leave a message wide open, uh, don't they, that they've got male intent and, and you can kind of smell it or feel it. Yeah, I learned a few things over the years. Um, to Tony's, he said back then they had a rule, never let anyone tie you up because, like you said, you're going to get taken off and tortured or something. I did. Um, I was going to do a business transaction with this guy, Gangster Dan. The whole story's in my book, Party Time. Went to his apartment, and some gang member he brought out from Los Angeles just opened the front door and just came straight, pointed this shotgun straight in my face, and he's just screaming his head off at me. Mm-hmm. I didn't giggle or smile or anything. I was just like, fucking hell. You know, um, but then yeah, the other guy comes. a messy thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> then the other guy comes and grabs the gun off him. Um, but yeah, so what I was told, what I learned was, if you are, you know, if you are getting at gunpoint and the guy starts to pace, he's psyching himself up to kill you. Oh, Before point. they kill you, they good quite point. often they pace. So that that, that kind is of, your moment to uh, start decide praying. something. Yeah, yeah. Start believing in God. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dyer Reynolds, David, what do you do now? Having done such dangerous work, have you now retired or been working some other kind of job, hobbies, businesses, etc.? I still find myself up ladders from time to time. Uh, Gail, was it? Uh, Dyer Reynolds. Oh, Dyer Reynolds. He's in deep, I guess. Um, yeah, um, putting in the CCTV cameras always seems to be using these uh, multiple-story ladders. And a strange thing, I think, statistically, one day I'm going to fall off one of these damn things. A gust of wind. You know, I don't weigh much. But not oh. into the Mars Bar Lake. Uh, no. And, and my luck, I'll end up a vegetable, won't I? No, not a clean death, just talking through a straw. What about hobbies then? Uh, well, I haven't got much time. Um, you know, I still like all the things I, I used to like. Yeah. Um, taking little machines apart. Yeah. Uh, and playing with them. Um, I like to watch a, a, something's really well thought out um, and TV dramas, like everybody does, a, a good um, season thing. Breaking Bad was good, not just because the subject matter was um, had some familiarity, but it was the... Uh, they had the time, didn't they, to, to take on the characters quite well. Yeah, the character or, development was superb or, in that or, series. D- remember, perhaps in, in Sopranos, there's a scene, and it was one of the best bits of acting I've ever seen from James Gandolfini, sadly dead now. He has done something or other to get off the hook of a murder case, and it's been difficult. The witnesses uh, couldn't be found or approached. 
Now, his family don't know anything about the fact that he could be facing this murder case. He gets a call from one of his uh, lieutenants who said, you know the guy who uh, thought he saw something? Well, he, he realized he didn't see it at all. So that's that. <laughs> Tony goes, right, but can't really say anything. He looks around his own house and goes into a kind of room where they keep the coats or something. It's got a little chair in there and closes that cubicle door and just enjoys his moment. It, it struck me that this is the loneliness of, of the long-distance criminal um, where there's so much you can't uh, tell people um, and you very rarely, especially when you're deep in it, you know, in that fictional world of Tony Sopranos, he, he couldn't start running around saying, look, I just got rid of a witness or something like that, or scared one off. Um, and something that's well thought, I really enjoy watching the, the good acting and well-planned out stories. What do you think about the juxtaposition of Walter White, the chemist, becoming this big, bad crystal meth kingpin? It, it was good, of course. It, 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 was, uh, it, it was terrific in a way, and I, I quite like the kid. Um, but um, I thought, and you know that that takes some writing skills to establish in episode one that he was um, brilliant and thought so. He went to a party as, with his former um, fellow students from university days, and they were all filthy rich tech heads. And he's he's so broke he he can only give them you know a packet of noodles or something, and. Uh, the sort of um, um, tech giant guy uh, has the grace to say, you know, he's been given a Stratocaster and Gibson guitars and, you know, troop of elephants by gifts from others, and he's got this rice noodles or something from Walter White because he's got the grace to tell everybody at this birthday bash for him, you know what, we tried to get these things in our dormitory when we were at university, but, yeah, thank you, Walter, for remembering it. So even... The writing was good enough to show that even the, the rich guys weren't villains. They were trying to help him. They even offered him a job in that one. But unaccountably, he, he didn't take it or the show wouldn't have gone on. Um, but that is skillful. Um, you know, look, lots of people um, try and write things. And, and that's why I'd like to have a bash at fiction sometime. Um, because it also gives me the opportunity to tell a lot of stories. I can't because... The real people will be revealed and their sons and daughters and those around them will be therefore identified, even if they're dead. So only through fiction can I tell some very interesting things. In our lives, so many people have come in and out of our stories. Yes. When you true. cross over to fiction, like Breaking Bad, it's just a cast of characters all the way through, same cast of characters, which keeps this tight story Exactly, arc. yes. Um, you, you don't have to account for the people who wander onto your stage briefly and then wander off in, is what happens in reality. Yeah. I suppose that's why I put that index in Unforgiving Destiny because at least the index is not just page number. It's also who they are and what the hell they did in the thing. You don't really need it, but it's the comfort of you can cross-check. In the real life, that happens. But with fiction, you can plan out how all these things interact. So uh, that would be fun to do. 
being in Arizona, which is right next to New Mexico, I ran into the same characters that Walter White ran into. But let me ask you, who were your favorite characters or most interesting characters in Breaking Bad? Um, well, of course, we all start with Walter because he has the, the fun part of being pretty much a straight citizen, uh, having to cope with um, all of the, you know, every situation getting tougher and more complicated. Um, by one series, he's working in an underground laboratory made in some car wash for an absolutely ruthless mercenary boss. Um, El Pollo. Mm, guy, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, when, when I first saw your stuff, I thought, New Mexican Mafia. They're Mexicans, but they're the new Mexican <laughs> mafia. No, wait a minute. No, no. New Mexico, the state. So that's what what it was, of course. It's a lot of MA. It's a prison gang. There's the old Mexican mafia born in Mexico. Mm. And then you've got the new Mexican mafia are people born in America who are called Chicanos. Ah, yes. Now, the, the, the Chicanos in the Arizona prison system have got a war with going against the Mexican nationals. Mm. So there's a there's a distinction there between the old and the new. But then in, in, in Breaking Bad, you had the guys come in um, who were like the cartel hitmen. Those Were they two brothers or twins or something? Yes. yes exactly. What did you think yeah. about them? Um, they made for good characters. Yeah, didn't they? Um, and it's, it's familiar ground, so it's hard to um, pull off. Uh, I found the kid a little bit irritating at times because um, – but I think he, he – he pretty much, apart from a couple of collapses, stayed loyal. Uh, the cute-looking girlfriend he had was dispatched unnecessarily, I thought. She was in a series called uh, Don't Talk to the Bitch in Flat 27B, a short-lived comedy uh, made by the guy who wrote uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, and that's worth catching up with. If what about Hank, that. the policeman? Did you think he had it coming? Um, I don't. Mind a policeman character if they're if they're sort of real. I don't automatically take the villain side. Yeah. Um, but I I think if the policeman goes out of his way to be too far away from Sherlock Holmes, uh, by which I mean this: if you go, um, Sherlock Holmes complained in his stories. I don't go. Uh, it's not my job to uh, lock people up. I solve puzzles. You know. So ideally, um, the the policeman in fiction that's sort of more likable is the one who's more interested in the challenge of figuring out uh, and hunting down things. Uh, what happens next is not to soil his hands with. They're very easy to be sympathetic with. Yeah. But uh, the one who gets a personal obsessive grudge against me, like Bill Shankman of the DEA. DEA agent. Mm. <laughs> Um, I mean, he had nothing. Most of the time, he had nothing to say to me, um, and I, I uh, you know, his comebacks for me saying to him, "Well, Bill, uh, do you need a certain amount of time for gloating, or are you just happy to do it while you're sitting there?" You know, um, I, I never said anything quotable. I almost felt like making up some lines for him. <laughs> You know, because he's supposed to be the toting villain in the thing. But he was such a flat character. Uh, even when I'm finally at his graveside, uh, it was only by coincidence I found some parting words for him. Uh, the, 
similar nemesis in the Tempe Police Department. Just going back to Breaking Bad briefly again, the transition of his wife, I thought, was so um, spellbinding. You mean a transition of Walter, into... Uh, Walter's uh, wife? Into an active uh, operator. Yes, that. yes. But... Um, Shouldn't be too much of a surprise, it, and certainly worked well as a, a character. Yeah, uh, and, and she had some good stuff to do. In Have it. you watched any Ozark? Love it, love it all. Ooh, I think that's. This is a story about an accountant who's laundering some money, and he finds himself ever deeper enmeshed in having to uh, clean up what. Five hundred million in the beginning. The cartel whack his business partner, and he didn't know that his business partner was working for the cartel, and they're going to whack him and his entire family. So he says, "I'll work for you if you don't do that." Yeah, that's yeah. how he starts. And he ends up in the um, middle of the Ozarks, hillbilly territory, really, trapped between some um, fifth-generation local farmer heroin growers, uh, <laughs> opium growers, um, and. Uh, the people that he's got to launder this money from and independence all in between. And a very interesting character there is the girl, isn't she? Yes. She's a kind of uh, hillbilly daughter who has to um, step up to the plate and manage uh, uh, a wild card father and uh, a, a useless brother whom she wants to protect anyway. Um it's it's good. There's two seasons. I believe that it's been set up for a third by the look of it. I'm obsessed with her character, definitely. If you try in Ozar and season one and you think, all right, I can't get through season one, believe me, season two is almost at the Breaking Bad level. Get get through season one, get onto number two, and you will be hooked. Yes, it is good. I think um, it is now at its most dangerous point, series-wise, yeah. of uh, running out of steam. Right. Um what do you do with him? At the end of series two, the plan was to disappear, I think, for Australia or somewhere um, and leave them to their own problems. And again, I think it's the wife, isn't it? She muscles up. Uh, when she does toughen up, she does it all wrong in the beginning, but she sort of gets it right towards the end. Yeah. Uh, and even the the teenage son is learning how to launder money in a and shoot quick guns. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the danger now is that unless um, the series devises some way of delivering the unexpected, it could go terribly wrong. I wouldn't like to be in the writer's shoes there trying to think If they had something. any sense, they would consult us, David. I think I think we could do some part-time yes. work there. Feel free to get in touch. <laughs> right, next question. Mm. Joe Schofield. Ask him if he has any regrets. Hmm. The thing about regrets is um, your solution to them in the magic world is to eliminate the thing ever happening, the thing you regret. But what do you lose with that? You lose the whatever wisdom you might have scraped from it. You lose the experience. You use the the good and the bad that came with it. So, uh, of course, um, I would regret. Uh, I, mean, I regret getting my first wife killed. I regret um, rather small things, um, not taking care of somebody that I was too busy and neglected, or but. 
I can't bring myself to regret anything where I've learnt something I never could before. Good answer. Jolly Fresh. I think this is a very young person. The spelling's a bit wonky, but I'll try and get through it. Has he ever wondered if he is paranoid schizophrenic from all of the drugs he has took when he thought cops were under the bed? Does this ring a bell? Cops under the bed? I think I might have said at some stage that um, during some period in a Bangkok hotel, um, I felt that uh, I became very nervous. But no, I think, as you say, it's a kind of young person. It's too easy, I think, uh, to apply technical psychiatric words to feelings which really amount to just fear or confusion. Do you have paranoia now, ever? No. I mean, the sense that somebody's following me. Or, or like pl- they're out to get you, the police my... or anything, they start to get you. No, I, I, I'm old enough to know that uh, the world's too clumsy for that. <laughs> People uh, like to sleep, eat, and grope after whoever they like to grope after. Pretty much everything else is mishandled. <laughs> Tom Atkinson. How did David decide that it was time to change his life career and how does he get his kicks now? His amazing highs and lows would have broke most people. How does he stay so chipper? Well, what's the alternative to uh, walk around miserable? Uh, I think that comes with our genes. People are either fundamentally uh, happy or not. Besides, I leave it to the dream state and the subconscious to uh, get on with it, whatever's happened in the past. And uh, there was part of that question was, uh, at what stage did I decide? Well, I'm 63 now. Um, I simply realized that I I couldn't afford the time uh, to do anything that would eat up five years here or ten years there. I just haven't got it. And there's some things I want to do. Uh, I found this a couple of things I want to write and... I found out something extraordinary through all this, but that's for another time. Excellent. Brian has asked, how many years was the organization up and running successfully before the final arrest? During the peak years, what kind of dollars were being made? Hmm. Sounds like a, a kind of accountant's question, but a good, a fair enough one. Okay, there were two periods, really. There was the uh, Australian high period from 1979 to 81, short but hugely profitable, in which some 10 or $12 uh, million dollars moved around. Um, it rewarded a lot of people. Um, and then that crashed. Then there was the more independent days, small scale, but much more controlled operations post um, India Pakistan in the um, in 2000 to 2004. Um, not massively profitable, but very kind of interesting jobs. In at some stage, uh, I might have an opportunity to talk about Scandinavia uh, and what goes on there. Christiania. Which is the, (laughs) well, uh, you know, Christiania, you've probably heard of it. It's an enclave within uh, Copenhagen, 
which decided to be a free state of its own. These hippies took over in an army barracks, refused to have anything to do, well, they certainly took the national grid, <laughs> took the electricity. The place is a warren of uh, buildings. Officially, they make these kind of uh, three-wheeled bicycles. Unofficially, um, they have Pusher Street, uh, a caravan arrangement. Um, that were tolerated mostly in the Amsterdam way, but sometimes cracked down upon. But all of those people have very interesting lives and led to something that tangled me up for a while involving um, was a two-ton hash smuggling operation from Pakistan. Uh, when I came in, things were already not great. And what really messed it up was um, the boat that was doing the, uh, the shipping from uh, Karachi through Dubai and on to Europe was provided by the uh, Russian mob and some Lithuanians who'd been using it for smuggling cigarettes around the Baltic. Uh, and so it was being tracked for other reasons. All of these people mixed together in a big pot, and I walk into it. But that's for another time. That's episode 19. <laughs> okay. Greg Bell. I noticed that dodgy Lord guy, I think he's on about Lord Moynihan, Moynihan yes. who grasped on you, grasped as in snitch, is the same guy who Howard Marks did business with and he informed on Howard as well. Indeed. Did you have dealings with Howard and what did you think of him and his books? R.I.P. Mr. Nice. Yes. Um, Howard was, um, yeah, a nice enough guy. Um, he... Um, He's no longer with us, so um, there's probably no need for him to be so modest about his accomplishments. He was a great promoter of uh, marijuana, its legalization, and its sale at reasonable prices. Um, he was not a man of limited interests, so he did uh, play around in other fields, but he wasn't inclined to write about those. Quite enjoyed the books. Only thing I didn't really like it, he, he, Howard was a bit of a grand self-promoter with a pretty large ego, and he needlessly named a few people in those books without any purpose that I could see, other than to, uh, what do they call it, name check mm. uh, a well-known person mm. as, as being involved in the scene. For example, if um, somebody with a nightclub or a... Um, Couturier's dress shop would have put money into it uh, some of his operations. Where's the point of naming that person particularly? He could have hinted around it if he insisted, or better yet, um, it wouldn't have harmed his story that he was uh, interested in telling if, he, if he'd left them alone. In fact, made him look a bit small-minded, mm. I think. Also, he didn't listen to my advice about uh, Tony Moynihan, which was available to him before he got ratted out by said Lord. If you want to find out more about the great helicopter escape, go back to episode one in the series, David Macmillan series, playlist in the description box. I read Mr. Nice. Actually, my dad sent it to me when I was in Supermax in Arizona in Florence. Uh, good book. Recommend it. Which leads on to the next question from... Beard, bearded Scott, 
Do you recommend any books besides <clears throat> your own? Um, I answered him directly. Okay. A bearded Scott. Um, and uh, because I wasn't entirely sure uh, what field he wanted, whether it was a uh, true crime, crime in general, or books as in anything written well. Um, and I can't quite remember what I told him, but um, I did, I know I did say that uh, in the world of um, true crime, there was nothing, uh, <laughs> I recommended my own, of course, uh, but there was nothing that uh, stood out other than yours, Sean. Yes, and Sean's. Part time, party time, prison time, the trilogy. Mm -hmm. Enjoying party time at the moment. That's good. <laughs> Getting a good laugh out of that. Um, but uh, that he should go back to a Richard Stark's series on Parker. Uh, Parker's an um, unrepentant uh, villain who runs around doing things, robbing. Maybe. What's your favorite book of all time? Oh, well, the most influential one is John Fowles' The Magus uh, because it. it really did something with the idea that nothing's by accident. Everything in your world is um, controlled by somebody. Uh, and I don't know really after that. I think as as you get older, um, I always found Vladimir Nabokov's uh, Lolita hilarious as a comedy. I mean, it, you know, a loathsome character, you know, Clearly a child molester, but he, it's comic the way he's handled it. Um, <clears throat> or um, no souls and Neatson? No, no, and it really it doesn't. Uh, the translation doesn't work. Um, look how well, uh, and people can handle second languages um, like um, the remains of the day, written by somebody who Japanese his first language. What a beautiful book. book! Yeah. Ah, yeah, it's so true. Something smooth about the way it was written. Um, Shirley Hazard has written a couple of books. Uh, the Great Fire is a, a terrific one. Um, and I've always loved, I grew up with a guy called Terry Southern, who was a Beat Generation writer and uh, a bit of an influence. Patrick Tweedy asked, apart from focusing on your escape during your Thai incarceration, how did you maintain sanity and determination in the face of the conditions? Well, um, I, I, luckily I wasn't broken. As we've said here, I had friends. Um, and that's all it takes to eat well enough. <clears throat> as for sleeping, um, it's awkward, but it does wonders for your back, sleeping on the floor. Uh, can't say enough of it. Uh, I've had to get a kind of firm mattress ever since. Oh, I've got a firm mattress as well. Um, but um, I think I, I said earlier, sleep is, is a bit strange. Whatever uh, was mangled in me it takes place in my subconscious, and every night's dreams are nightmares. Do you feel lucky? This is from August, May. Do you ever think about how everything could have ended worse? I, I suppose. Um, but I don't, I don't dwell on it. I could have ended up dead. That would have been alternative outcome, that's all. Now, there would be nothing worse than being trapped in one of the dozen places I could have been for a long time. Um, and coming out a, a wreck or wired wrongly, I guess so. Barzam 
He's on about the example of Michael and something you said earlier. Can you elaborate on the 10% of people that react differently to most people with their drug habits? Yes. Um, Out of some years, uh, knowing people who've uh, had opiates, it's got a particular, it's got two characteristics beyond any other drugs. Um, Firstly, it, it produces a physical withdrawal, so it's extremely risky and you have to follow certain things to um, deal with that. Uh, that's why we had a lot of subutex around. It was kind of policy within our little group to always have an alternative if somebody was trapped. But the real point here is that, yes, I certainly believe that some people um, end up wired a bit funny that makes their own personal chemistry have a kind of unhappiness to it. You know, you think of evolution and how uh, we came to be still alive. So many things were kind of bred out of us. Those women who didn't like the idea of something growing in them and being subject to pain to have children, there aren't many of them. Why? Because they never had children. So by the same way, evolution's made happiness a good thing to have, but so complex the brain you can imagine um it's so easy for for that to be and i would say to people who feel that they suffer from depression or a a foundation unhappiness which is shown you've probably seen people with no confidence if there was any rational part in this world to do with the law Things would be legalized so it could be discovered what, amongst all the illegal drugs, would be useful treatments for things like depression. There's something in opiates that stops you catching the common cold. Nobody's investigated it. And what is this thing that makes happiness not investigated? H.L. Uh, Mencken said years ago he defined a, a Puritan as a person who fears that somewhere, somehow, someone is enjoying himself. And that is the thing with drugs. Nobody wants to legalize having a good time. Yeah, and those people who react differently definitely exist because my main thing was ecstasy, and we'd all be on ecstasy, you know, just smiling and massaging each other and cuddle puddles and all Vicks inhalers and all this stuff. And <laughs> but I had the odd friend who would take ecstasy, get completely paranoid, uncomfortable, and go home and vacuum clean. So, yeah. Definitely. Carlos Cap, it's got to be none. <laughs> Yours could use a scrub up here. <laughs> okay, so next one. Liam Bro Bro Bro. I think that's Brother. Mm. In Thai prison, what were the strangest stores you saw being run, such as rat breeding or peculiar food? Mm. Uh, everybody tried to have a little occupation of some kind. They could work in the factories for next to nothing. But the more enterprising had... Um, road stalls or side stalls, which did everything from rolling the cigarette for you when you came for them, um, fixing cigarette lighters. Um, I suppose the guy that uh, made the most unusual income was being uh, the subject of bets as to where the elephantiasis parasites, which were long worms, would snap in his swollen one leg which was the size of a tree trunk. He couldn't move it, hobbled around. He'd prop that leg out every afternoon, and gamblers would come along and 
They tease one of the worms out of his suppurating flesh, roll it around a pencil, get a grip on it, and then the betting would begin. Two inches, I say, and it'll sap. No, that worm will hold out till three. No, no, you're talking through your hat there, Freddie. This will get a good six inches. <laughs> Snap. There you are. And he'd get, a, he'd get a cut of the house on that. Now, I, I, I've seen people uh, earn a living through disabilities. There was a guy down in the hospital who had uh, bark where a leg should have been instead of skin. Um, but his was a short-lived engagement, unfortunately. See how your story, uh, your questions can provoke the most interesting stories. Where would we have been without the worms? Um, CJ has asked, how do you feel about today's drug dealers who have no morals or brain cells? Hmm. It's a difficult trade. Ever since the uh, Berlin Wall came down, uh, the field's wide open, prices are down. Albanians are selling something that bears about as much relation to genuine cocaine as, uh, I don't know, this liquid in here bears a relationship to uh, the elixir of life. Pretty much none. <laughs> um, morals, I don't think they really ever entered into it, except for a few deluded people. We all had what we thought, uh, you know, um, um, convinced ourselves for standards. And why? Because we could afford them. <laughs> I don't think I would have had them. I know in the middle of... You know, shit creek Africa somewhere, you know, starving to death. Wouldn't be too fussy then. You four too. Have you had experiences on psychedelics, LSD, mushrooms? Only work once. Uh, that's what I found. With some people's chemistry, the um, first formulation of, say, LSD you take produces pretty much as you want. Different colors, things all upside down. Kind of cool if you if you've got a safe place to do all this, you know. So nice. This would be good. Padded walls and all of that. <laughs> bit spooky, but still. But what I mean is, it it doesn't seem to. It rewires the brain and and doesn't work again. It's a bit speedy after that. Johnny Holmes, and you've already answered some of this about your hope for the Thai Kings yearly pardons. You said they were cutting those out for people in your situation. But he's also asked another question. Um, when you got to the Thai prison and you were depressed. Were you tempted to use heroin to assuage that depression? I think somebody's asked that before in a, a different way. Um, I didn't have any real inclination to, but I certainly couldn't afford the um, the luxury of sitting around and enjoying myself vaping out for a couple of days. Um, the The point was, I had a job to do to save my own life. This was... I. You know, anything that you take, up as down as sideways, they're taking an edge off your decision-making ability. I mean, have you ever come across something where you made a better decision, stoned? I don't think so. And we put all our decisions on hold. I'm drunk, I'm stoned. Do not act on any of your great ideas until you read them back in the morning. Rule the world. Yeah, but how? They just don't read back the well the next Don't get high on shrooms and start sending emails and responses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Johnny Wisdom, thank you, David, for all the content. Um, you've mentioned the price that the life of crime has taken on you. Can you elaborate on this? Was all the excitement of this life worth the suffering? Well, uh, if he's asking, asking that question... Uh, to seek a recommendation as to whether it's worth going into for is it worth the price. 
<clears throat> we are of what our times are, and I think that era um, has gone in... Well, it was never particularly safe in my time, and certainly crookdom in general, I think, Sean, you'll have to agree, it'd be very hard to find people to work with who, even if you're inclined to, who were technically up to date or had any uh, the skill set necessary. I mean, we'd love to go over to Iran, wouldn't we, and steal back their Shah's crown jewels. Ah, be there in a minute. <laughs> but the plan and who could you get? Questions about that? I want answers. <laughs> the bottom line is as well, if the stars hadn't aligned, David wouldn't even be here if they hadn't aligned that night of the escape. Um, from Westie 420, what's the difference between Afghan and Thai heroin? <clears throat> The amount of time it takes to make it, mostly. Uh, the uh, diacetylmorphine in um, Thailand is done to the French recipe. Um, and so it's charcoal filtered and cleaned up a bit. Comes in between 88 and uh, 95%. The stuff in Afghanistan, I've seen these guys do it in a bucket with uh, uh, a bit of nitric acid cook up and some very basic chemistry not much filtering though it's a bit like everywhere really um you arrange that the opium farmer supplies him with whatever and you tell them uh, what they uh, what you want out of it how how good to make um either way of, of course you, you don't want impurities on it and yet strangely enough in this country people go out of their way to buy brown stuff that's rubbish T. Parker, Fortnite, has asked, other than the ways you've mentioned about the Thai guards, are there any other ways in which they hurt prisoners? I think you want a juicy, grisly story there, don't you? Mr. Parker. Mm, Mr. Parker. Let's see if we can come up with a horror story for him. Well, I, I suppose, um, really... It, it might not satisfy uh, Mr. Parker here, but one of the things that stayed in memory was um, the amount of people that can be packed into a room. Mm. You recall uh, I had no more than six in mine, yet next door when a, a bus came in, I guess unexpectedly, uh, we were counting the number of people who went in. And... Sten and I were arguing over whether it was uh, 39 or 49. We just couldn't believe it. That meant <clears throat> um, they could not, never mind lie down, they couldn't have, they would have had to take turns sitting down. Um, and this was one with a, a cell that had a, a busted fan as well. It must have been a nightmare. You really got a sense of that in Billy Moore's A Prayer Before Dawn, the movie showed it, yeah. Yes, it was a visually striking movie, isn't yeah, it? That? Yeah. Uh, it is good. Okay. Mad Max 101, Honk, Honk, Honking. <laughs> I'm not satisfied with the first three names. He's <laughs> driven you, on for a four. Yes. Do you ever wish you stayed away from smuggling and stayed in politics to rise through the ranks to become the Prime Minister of Australia? Oh, really? Well, I don't mind lying for a living. But I like some element in truth in what I do. Politics is a step too far. <laughs> They're the biggest criminals. Mm. Death is here. 
What is the method of capital punishment in Thailand? How long does the process take from sentence till end? So you well, already we, said that you are basically you machine gun. You've already answered that. Um, in your case, then, how long were you actually in the jail for before you escaped? I was there about two years, nine months, something. And in America, with all the appeals and stuff like that, it can take that 20 years, for example, can be like people still on death row. Does that happen in Thailand or do they get rid of you after so long? Around about five years, the appeal process is exhausted. Uh, Tommy's uncle, one of the big Golden Triangle guys, he was finally cornered with something resembling an arrest with 250 kilos in the back of a car that he could be connected with. Went down in the first court, but he bought the Supreme Court of uh, Thailand. Uh, but uh, during the time of uh, actually being sentenced and um, his uh, dismissal of that case, he had to spend some time in custody. Kind of luxurious custody, but... Uh, if you want the full story of the drug lord Uncle, it is in David Macmillan's playlist in the description box below this video. Pre oh, l Lolly Trolley has asked... A troll at last. <laughs> Did you have anything in the business that you look back on with shame, and with so which sticks out without incriminating yourself? <clears throat> Well, um, not with shame, but it's a story of, of uh, here's something, I, I guess, of mixed regret. Uh, and this, I don't know, it's about a five-minute story. Do we have time? We've got all the time, as long as you're not exhausted. No, okay. <clears throat> um, it's a, an, an odd one, because it, it, it takes, imagine these people. This is in Australia. I had some customers who would take a few ounces of heroin a week. Um, I generally preferred larger, but they were friends of friends and Michael knew them. This was a couple who had a, a very neat house in the suburbs and because um, they both had habits, but um, regulated their lives well. Uh, she was a good cook. They kept normal hours. And they were kind to the people they dealt with. Um, uh, he was another Michael, but so I won't call him that. I'll, I'll call him John and Mary. Um, <clears throat> they had um, a situation develop. One of the working girls, by which I mean a young prostitute, would leave her baby, very young, just months old, with them while she went off and did more interesting things, as far as she saw it. Um, and... Uh, Mary told me, look, we, we have to change the baby's nappies. It's usually got nappy rash. We, it's, it's good in a way. It, it, it clears it up. Uh, but, you know, we feel sad when she comes back for the kid. What I'd say, that night? Oh, no, it could be days later, sometimes weeks. Really? Yeah. Um, they spent a lot of time uh, taking care of baby Cheryl. And eventually... Um, the mother uh, found a new boyfriend and um, wanted to <clears throat> move on into somewhere and had no interest in the baby. So um, uh, said, you can have Cheryl. Uh, I don't want her anyway. I've got, I'm, I'm moving to Sydney. <clears throat> baby Cheryl was left with John and Mary and pretty much grew up. Girl was never heard from except a couple of times when she wanted money. And, of course, it was, you know, 
a fee, I guess, for giving them. This was a childless couple. <clears throat> a situation arose. Um, four, or was it five years had passed, and uh, baby Cheryl was little girl Cheryl, going to a local school, growing up well, happy. John and Mary were sort of... Uh, not really much in the business. They did a little trade with some old friends. I, I was out of it, so I um, gave them somebody reliable. Um, but everything was fine with their world. But it wasn't with the slagette who had left the baby and abandoned her child. She got into some legal trouble, as they do. And um, she realized that, or thought that it would be an advantage to her in her court case, if she had a child. So she wanted that one back. She was out on bail pending the resolution of some charges. And um, John and Mary came to me and said, uh, David, uh, what do we do? You know good lawyers? I said, yes. And I went to the best uh, I knew. He said, David, you're kidding. Uh, how am I supposed to go to a court? and say, well, you can forget about the natural mother. Um, I think uh, your honours should give this child to people who are not her family, and you'll soon hear from the other side that um, uh, they are drug dealers in heroin. So that would be suitable, what do you think? Yeah. That's what my lawyer said to me. So I went back to them and said, look, I'm sorry. Um, look, she may forget about this, this slaggate, uh, that she... Her case might resolve itself, or she'll have another technique. She won't want to use the child to get out of trouble. Um, do you, what do you want me to do? Uh, John said, "Pull me aside, David. Is there anything else you could do? You know, your way." Uh, let me think about that. <clears throat> and here's where I regret everything that followed. I went back to them. I was still fairly young, bear in mind, my early 20s. And I got... Little Cheryl was running around there, playing in a room. I said to John and Mary, um, if I take some action, you have to ask yourselves, are you the kind of people who in 10 years' time, when she's a teenager and you've had a fight... And she asked you, but yes, what about my real mum? Are you the kind of people who can look back upon these months when Miss Slaggett has well and truly met with an accident or, in this case, disappeared off the face of the earth, never to be heard from again, nor will she, by my guess? Can you live with that? Can you... Assure yourselves that you can look at the light of your life and lie to her outright and say, I'm sorry we know nothing of your mother. Hmm. A week passed. Lawyers were tooling up, getting ready to do their bit. I went back and good people that they were, they said... Uh, I'm sorry, we, we, we couldn't really. We love her too much to lie to her. So um, the Slaygate got her way, 
um, for her purposes, the child was wrested from John and Mary. Mm. There was an extraordinarily difficult scene where um, uh, the child was dragged screaming away on the front lawn by social services and police on standby. Mummy, Daddy, you know, what have I done? <laughs> and um, went back into the tender care of the natural mother who soon found another boyfriend and lost interest and uh, um, Cheryl grew up, uh, felt betrayed by John and Mary, um, was generally poisoned about her, ended up in some ways imitating the worst of a mother just to see what that was like, what was all that about. Uh, ended up with drug habits um, and pretty much trashed her own life. I went into abusive relationships because normal ones obviously weren't the right thing to do. Mm. Um, Mary never got over it. The um, marriage between the two of them declined until they were almost strangers to each other mm. uh, because that thing that was in their lives was taken from them. They felt guilty either way. Mm. Where I don't forgive myself is in having... Um, said anything at all. Mm. What the fuck? <laughs> Was I getting those do down to, what, to, to be some kind of smart-ass, all-powerful dude who can say, I can make your problem vanish, but don't ask me how, even though I've damn well just told you how, mm. uh, by other means. And I learned from that um, that if you're going to do something, do it. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Yeah. If... Whatever happened to the mother, I could ask years later. I don't know, she, that, that case never went ahead. They say she, she moved somewhere. Yeah. There was some evidence she checked into a hotel somewhere, you know, under another name, but they knew you know, there was a bit of a paper trail, was there? Oh, well, that must be true. Cali Cartel used to put lookalikes on the planes and mm. say they disappeared over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing. If you're going to do something, don't gain points by making it uh, your own ego trip for people. Premium, P-E-N-G-U-I, has asked, what David thinks about medical cannabis being used to battle heroin opioid addiction? Well, I don't think it would terribly be very effective. Um, I think the research way to go is um, uh, the withdrawal effects for some reason, can be countered entirely by getting into a hot bath. Um, and you can see the connection there between um, mothers who are giving birth getting into a warm bath, feeling almost no pain. Um, there, it's within the realms of possibility to investigate these things properly and find um, a relatively uh, pain-free cure for the addiction that won't involve whoever's addicted making, you know, awkward choices. Okay, doesn't mean they'd ever get off it. They could drift back and forward. But again, it's something that um, people have brought upon themselves, so there'll never be any money in it, no research. In the 1800s, in the late 1800s, they thought that cocaine, when it was touted as a cure-all wonder drug, would cure heroin, opioid addiction, and it just ended up with people addicted to two substances. Yes. Um, well, of course, when they're promoting something, I mean, the early heroin bottles always gave it kind of cure-all properties. Yeah, then heroin was a cure-all as well at one point. Mm. Uh, I think Sears Roebuck 
sold for, for a dollar or so many cents uh, a needle and um, the heroin, the dosage and adults were supposed to take so much and children were only supposed to have this much and it would well, help, yeah. help them sleep at night. <laughs> I bet it did. I bet it did. Not a peep out of the little nippers. <laughs> Holly Aurora Bar. Um, were you ever scared because you come across as very calm and level-headed? Was I scared because I, I come across? You, you, oh, co- you come I don't across understand. as very calm and level-headed, but were you ever scared? Um, not really. Um, but the the only time that um, that threshold was crushed, in, I, I felt nervous about certain things that um, weren't going well, but not scared. Uh, fear... Um, in any overwhelming sense, only um, came into play in the torture cells of Karachi. But that's another story. That's right? coming, yeah. Lewis Spear has we've de- had him before. Haven't we? Have we had him? Uh, is he asked two? Has he then? Achieve the Spearman. Yes, there he is. He was the first one. He's back again. Could you could have gone straight? He's just. Um, yeah, he's recycled that question. He's just re- no, yeah, he's rephrased it. So we'll skip that. We'll skip that. Well spotted. Yeah. Um, Kevin Davies, did David teach any of the lads how to smuggle stuff into prison while he was in the last UK jail? That might be coming in the final of the mm. season four. Well, I, I, they were pretty accomplished, but... Uh, uh, I think that would actually um, open you up to a legal liability. It's probably best not answered because it could be well, a conspiracy. Well, here's the point. Uh, I'm reluctant to – this is very ongoing. It's a bit like asking me, um, can you say nothing that will get somebody arrested tomorrow? Yeah, let's, let's, let's not go there. I'd rather not. Quadrex has asked – thank you, Quadrex. You've really supported the channel over the years. Appreciate all of your comments and interest. Who was the most dangerous person you've ever met? He did ask this, and I wrote, uh, answered him publicly, but directly, um, that uh, I found the most dangerous uh, people I'd met, the people that didn't make me scared, but rather admired them. And I spoke of uh, Jim Baisley, who was a a contract killer. I just called him Jim, but I think he must be from Australia because he he guessed who he was, because that was one, did I say that he didn't want to Kill somebody because he liked dogs and uh, did we do this dog one? around? I think I think we we spoke something about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So go back to the through the series to get the full details of that one. Um, Ten million views has asked why are you not in an Australian prison? Because I don't want to be ten million. <laughs> you did your time. Uh, all I'm wanted for there is uh, a parole violation, which is not extraditable. They aren't because they let you out the door. They can't complain to another government later on that they changed their mind about that. <laughs> Mags Maz has asked, does being a polite gentleman help in your life of crime? Uh, if it's referring to me, yes. uh, then, of course, um, I, I don't know. I just, I'm just myself. I don't, I don't find it... it there's any advantage to get upset over anything. And uh, my mother was always a bit insistent on, on good manners, even though uh, no matter what you're doing. So uh, 
even if it's the worst thing on earth, I try not to be impolite about it. I think good manners do help because it leads to less confrontation, showing people respect, but having a line that people can't cross showing that as well and having that balance right. And I think you've got that balance right. Well, I think too, if um, if you so show certain standards to somebody, even if they've got bad intent, they kind of automatically try and match standards of their own, even if they're bad ones, but they will uh, apply them in the same if way. If you've got a calmness as well, people will come down to your level if they're like angry, aggressive people sometimes. I've noticed No, it that. can help. I, I might have that because my yeah. pet dogs all fall asleep when I pick them up. <laughs> and when I read my books to anybody, they're asleep in seconds. <laughs> Just two more. John Wadsworth has asked, what's the music in the background of the video you just put on your own YouTube channel? Um, there's two parts to it. Um, one is a slice out of um, some background score for Mad Men, the TV series, about advertising, which goes on to an Anne Dudley score for some film she was working on. I forget. Anne Dudley has done some great music and... I'd highly recommend her Tales from a Victoria City. Now, um, a few people didn't like the music in the background, said it was distracting. So on balance, you probably might not hear it. But I do have a, uh, a kind of playlist selection for music that meant something to me at the time up on YouTube, so we can trample around that if you like. And I'll be, for those who don't mind me droning on, I'll be reading my books into a microphone in the next couple of weeks. And therefore, audio editions, best followed by a hard copy in your back pocket, um, will be available for those who'd like to do the dishes. And, and for people something. watching the whole series in future months and David's playlist, we will put the, um, if you're watching this now in months from now, and these books are already published, the link for his audio book will be in the description box of all the videos proactively as well. So final question is then, what do you think of the Julian Assange situation and what will happen him to him next now that he was just sentenced to 12 months in in the UK? That's right, 50 weeks, wasn't it, for um, yes. a jumping bail? Yes. I think, really, <clears throat> he, um, firstly... It should be decorum that if you're going to jump bail, you sort out the people who put it out first. People did lose properties yes. over that. I don't consider him such a, um, a crusader that uh, warrants treating people shabbily. Um, Just to give the other side, though, he, they were calling for the death penalty, uh, to give him the death penalty for spying and all this stuff in America at that point in time. Oh, I don't doubt that yeah. he's got um, uh, very strong grounds, which he will... Um, have quite a battle in the extradition courts, as I did, uh, in another way. But it's hard to avoid a U.S. extradition. It's been done a couple of times. Do you think this 12 months has been slapped onto him then to give time for the legal process of all these other countries to therefore have m these other cases and get him potentially to it's America? It's certainly convenient to them. Yeah, it's, it's I a think setup, isn't uh, it? they'd be quite happy to uh, see the Swedish um, sex allegations case come to something. But that's probably unlikely. Um, the American one, on the other hand, will uh, be quite a battle for him. Did you read the details of the Swedish sex allegation case? They seemed a bit flimsy. 
Because it's, it's to do with not wearing a condom, isn't it? If you don't wear a condom... Oh, I didn't know that. That's considered sexual assault in Sweden. Ah. Huh? So the allegation is that he had so consensual sex. So the activity was consented to. Well, yeah, these, these ladies, after the... Um, were, were seen photographed with him weeks after these allegations. They were still partying and getting photographed with him weeks after the um, the incident oh, supposedly yes. took place. Right, right, right. And they were attached to the embassy as well. Um, but supposedly one allegation was that he had consensual sex with a condom and then she woke up in the night with and he was having sex without a condom or something like that. Yeah, but, right. but it seems all it seems all it seems far fetched to me and convenient at the time that he you know, he put all, all this. What do you think information. That by some sense that um because the Americans are so keen to get him, yeah, they prompted up uh, some kind of activity to amount to a holding charge till they can um, get somewhere with theirs. Have you watched the collateral murder video on YouTube? Uh, no, no. Video will be in the description box um, if you're interested in Julian Assange. It is. It shows the some journalists on the streets of I think it's Iraq, mm. and the Americans come in and it's it's like a video game oh, to them. Uh, yes, like, I, kill I've him, kill him, kill him, kill him. I've seen that. It's Their enemies kill him. And then a family stops to help them, and they wipe out the family as well. Yes, a very trigger-happy... Um, they're all giggling, like almost like while, while they're yes. doing it, trigger-happy. Uh, those long-distance killings, of which there'll be many more in, in the future. Yeah. Uh, asymmetrical warfare, don't they call it, when one side's overwhelmingly yeah. uh, outpowers the other. Um, I think... Uh, look, it's a, it's a good thing that Julian's organization, even if you don't like him much as a person, uh, has done the things, and he shouldn't. Um, be be uh, treated to spurious uh, laws, especially about revealing things that should be revealed. Everything's a crime. It can be. Um, there, there's powers here that can uh, charge us for revealing things if anybody wants to bother. But um, I just remember seeing that picture of him with the wild white beard being carried off somewhere, muttering, and remembered the history of white beards being carried off somewhere, muttering, including uh, Saddam Hussein coming out, <laughs> coming out of that uh, concrete bunker, looking at a marine sergeant, you know, staring down at him, saying, uh, I, "I have diplomatic immunity." Well, that qualifies as a meaningless rant, and uh, I think it was uh, Milosevic from Serbia grew the. Uh, Madman's white beard. Generally, what happens after that? You see the beard and the muttering uh, doesn't go well. Um, and so, but I certainly wish his case well, and I'd, I'd I'd like to defend him if he if he wants somebody other than those rather incompetent expat Australian lawyers that he's got. Uh, I, I, by the way, I wrote to one of them. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy uh, Robertson. Mm. Um, if you take on my uh, extradition case, and uh, didn't hear anything back, he, he didn't want it. Um, bit of a show pony, though. Though they're quite good as a, a lawyer, but more of a television identity. Now he needs something interesting, doesn't he? And you he don't live a, too far from where he's being held either, do you? Isn't he in London right now? Uh, I think he's in Belmarsh, I would expect. Okay. Uh, he's jumped bail, he's got potential for helpers. That's enough to put him in a canary suit. That is the uh, the green and yellow suit that you were forced to wear, as I was, when you're considered a, a flight risk and an escape potential. So if he does ultimately end up in the American judicial system, what it's do you federal, think? federal, isn't it? 
What do you think the outcome will, will be for him? The, what, what is his fate? Mm. Providing they don't invoke some special clauses to take it out of the hands of civilian courts. I think it's uh, down to his supporters. Well, can they do that in the interest of national security? Not easily, uh, because an extradition case, part of the deal is Britain, or wherever he goes from, will only agree to face this particular charge. They They can bring no further charges once he's there. That's part of the international agreement with extraditions. Um, Also, it will have to be a trial conducted in a certain way, agreed, which will be in the civilian courts. I remember when the IRA guys and somebody I knew in there were being tried in New York City for some bits of mischief. Um, They had plenty of dough, and their legal team went out doing surveys on the potential jurors in the area. They had a complete breakdown from the jury pool of what their core beliefs were and thinking. You can imagine how frowned upon that would be in the UK if if you hired a legal team to mm. do general, not particular by name, polls of what the the belief system was of the, of the jury pool from which they were drawn. Did OJ do some of that? Yes, he, he had some of that. I think uh, I saw that in People vs. Yes. OJ. You, he will have available to him, if he's got the money, um, some quite sophisticated uh, defense technology. So they won't be able to take Julian off and just waterboard him somewhere? No, no. He he will get um, probably fair treatment. I think, really, the Americans know they're gonna, they, they won't be plugging leaks and punishing him by conviction won't mean very much. I think they'd be, a bit like Thailand was in my extradition case, happy with the fact that their power, their reach is recognized, and they were given their man. What happens to him won't mean much. I suppose they'll be able to have uh, a grand jury and some sealed indictments on a few um, people around him to give them a headache. Um, But I I don't think he'll ever get convicted of anything. You don't think he'll ever get convicted of anything in America if they go for all this? No, I I think uh, carefully... Well, if his defense is handled properly... Uh, it could very, and you shut him up. You don't want him on the stand. He's, he'd shoot himself in the foot speaking. He sounds like a fabulous uh, self-promoter um, and like a little kid sometimes who's been had his toys taken away from him. No, he just sits there quietly looking sad. That's all I'd want out of him if I was his defense counsel. And I would tear into the legality of what exactly it was that he did. And you, know, you wouldn't brook any of this vagaries of uh, conspiracy to you tear that up. Well, because he's, he's rocked so many boats in politics around the world, I think if they do get him over there, because they've made such big headlines out of it, that they'll give him a long sentence. I think the dice are loaded in the judicial system, and the government is the is the house. It is so, but even from your time, they... Uh, didn't you get the feeling that in America it's fair play to the richest dealer at the table? Somebody who is out foxes, out wits, and has a, a more expensive team is generally awarded the prize. And the government is not necessarily the, the winner at the end of the day. And that, you say, yes, possibly, but that doesn't apply to national security issues. Yeah. Yes, you'd think that. But uh, I think he might weaken 
to some kind of plea deal. I think because of the national security issues, it ratchets it up from the OJ level. But yeah, it probably end up in a plea deal. Trump, when he was battling Hillary for presidency, said, I love WikiLeaks. But now he's saying, who's Julian Assange? Poor old, old Donald. He's a unique personality, isn't he? <laughs> uh, it, but I think he's the president they deserve at the moment. <laughs> do you think Trump will do anything for Julian? No, he, I don't think he gives a toss one way or another. Uh, I think it's usually a tradition for presidents on their way out. Uh, for example, if he if he doesn't win the election against, uh, who is it, the old kind of respected guy at the moment, I'll think of his name. He, uh, he was a vice president under Obama. He's getting on a bit, this opponent of Trump's. But if, if Trump loses out, and in any event, just before his last days, he'll do what all presidents do. They pardon all their business buddies that are currently doing time for uh, fiscal misdemeanors, or any damn misdemeanor. Bill Clinton pardoned his coke-dealing brother, Roger. Roger, and yeah. Ro Roger, Roger um, was selling, I think he's buying coke from a DA agent, and he said, my brother Bill's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they they give uh, they, they give uh, pardoning powers to their presidents there, and we have ours uh, with Her Majesty, um, which is still there. Uh, but they're typically up for sale, aren't they? The, the, uh, you make who, a contribution, the American ones. Oh, the ones. American ones, yeah. yes. Um, I, I saw a documentary of uh, Betty Windsor, Her Majesty, signing somebody's pardon. And, and she did bother to say, uh, well, what, what's, what did he do? Did he save a guard's life or something? Uh, a personal private secretary said, uh, Ma'am, I believe he did something of value. As far as I know. In other words, just sign the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there's our take on Julian. David mm. thinks he's going to put up a good defence, can possibly get out. There's not really a legal case against him. He, you know, he is only a journalist after all. Freedom of speech for journalists. He's reported about crimes, yet he's the one doing the time. And I think because the Americans, it's so corrupt, possibility that they're going to try and make an example out of him and bury him alive in the federal system so let's see where it goes in those two ways now mm. david has filmed today a world record on the podcast between parts three and four of his series we've not filmed this long ever with anyone on one single day we're looking at we must be getting on for five hours now <laughs> so please support david like i've said throughout the <clears throat> these um broadcasts please support david by going over to amazon buying his book leaving reviews um his website's there he's doing work in the south of london he's got his own youtube channel if you've got more questions for future series we were just about to go over to the badlands of karachi and Afghanistan. If you've got more questions, put them in the comments section. And, and, if, and people should know if they want more on, on your YouTube uh, material and links, where it says show more, just under the description of what you're about to see. Click on that, and a big panel drops down with lots of very interesting links on it. Yeah, and have you got anything you would like to say to the viewers um, before we have a hug? Well, the five hours has flown by. And the burrito you gave me for lunch has flown through. <laughs> so um, I've enjoyed myself. I've enjoyed myself. <laughs> and, My um, heart was going like crazy during that escape stuff. Mm, um, 
Yes, where we go next um, is, look, Thailand had its challenges. That escape was difficult. But I was so frustrated and so uncomprehending that it's taken me at least 10 years to understand what I went through in Afghanistan. Uh, and with seven different tribes in a dozen languages and seemingly impossible situations with utterly ruthless people. Um, and that it's only now that it's good that uh, I can explain it. And that'll certainly be worth catching up with if you've got nothing better to do with your time. Join us. <laughs> Cheers <laughs> in YouTube. Thanks. Okay, then. Thanks so much, David. You've been right. good to see you. Proper soul. You have brilliant faces. Yeah.